Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Royal College of Surgeons of England. Uh, my name is Sam, I work here, and it's been my privilege to work alongside Mick Crumplin and Hayley Kruger in organizing this meeting. As I'm sure you'll agree, we have a stellar lineup, and we hope we are in a good place to achieve our objective, um, which was not only to commemorate um, the role of the uh, medical services in the Great War, but also to reflect on that role um, over 250 years, which is hence from Hunter to Helmand. And to do so, we tried to bring together not only serving military and clinicians and those who have served, but also medical historians with a clinical background and those with a non-clinical background, um, myself included, I should say. And so we're hoping to get some really interesting discussions going between these different and overlapping groups. Um, and as such, the speakers have been given very firm instructions to speak for no longer than 30 minutes, and I'm sure they will all comply, um, to leave a lot of space for discussion, because I'm keenly aware of the expertise we have in the room beyond the speakers and the chairs. It's my role uh, to undertake the glamorous uh, duties of uh, the logistics. So I am here to tell you that your uh, fire exits are at the back and at the side, here and here. Um, the fire gathering point on this soggy day is just over the road um, on, on uh, beside Lincoln's in Fields, the park. And there will actually be a fire alarm test, a test at 4 p.m. in the middle of Pete Starling's talk. Sorry about that. Um, so we'll have a little breather. Um, if it goes off at any time other than 4 p.m., then it's real and we should leave. But at 4 o'clock, we'll just have a little breather. It will ring three times, and each time you'll think that they've stopped, and then they'll do it again. Um, other logistics, uh, we have no or certainly intermittent Wi-Fi today. Um, I don't know if there are any um, twits here, or, or what, I, but I, I'm terribly sorry about that. Um, I, I, it's a good thing because I don't know what our handle would have been, um, but we can assume that otherwise we would, of course, have been trending or whatever it is. But I do apologize um, about that. So you won't be able to check your emails during the talks. Um, you may actually have to listen. <laughs> this conference is the uh, culmination of a year-long program um, we've been holding here at the RCS. Um, there's an exhibition uh, called War, Art, and Surgery, which is on in the small temporary exhibition gallery upstairs in the Hunterian Museum. Um, open today and tomorrow, 10 till 5, so you're very welcome to pop up there um, in the breaks and the lunches. Um, there's a book uh, which we're shamelessly advertising and discounting, as you'll see on the back of your conference pack, and this has been uh, the culmination of a series um, of events. Um, if you have any uh, further questions about logistics and so on, my colleague Hayley Kruger, who you have seen as you came in, has all the answers. It finally uh, falls to me to thank our sponsor, the Wellcome Trust, directly for this conference, but our supporters for the program as a whole have included Arts Council England, the Knott Trust, the Newman Trust, and others, 
including the fellowship and membership of the college who responded uh, very generously. Enough then of the preamble um, and we can move straight into our introductory speaker, uh, Brigadier Chris Parker, who we're delighted was able to come and open the meeting um, given his role as medical advisor to the forces in Afghanistan. Brigadier Parker. Thank you very much, Sam. I feel like I should start with a question, actually. Apart from the fact that they've told you, how do you know it's a practice at four o'clock? <laughs> I guess I'm too suspicious after too many years on operations, but it's a real pleasure for me to open this conference, and it's tremendous to see such a good attendance today, and I know that the same is forecast for tomorrow. We all know that there's a strong association between war and medicine, um, Many of the great developments have happened during conflict. Uh, you've only got to look at the exhibition upstairs, the fantastic uh, pastels, Tonks pastels of Gilly's work with plastics in the First World War, followed on, of course, by uh, Archie McIndoe at East Grinstead with the pilots in the Second World War. But mass trans or transfusion on a, on a big scale, the use of antibiotics, all of these things came about during conflict. And the military machine helped to, to take it and spread it at scale and pace. The current conflict's really no exception, and we'll hear from other speakers over the next couple of days about the innovative techniques and procedures and equipment that have contributed to the greatest survival imaginable, the most astonishing survival yet seen. And I think it's really apt for this conference to take place in the year when we do commemorate the, the start of the First World War, in the month when British troops have completed their combat operations in Afghanistan, and in the week that includes Armistice Day and the National Remembrance. I'd also like to thank Dr. Sam Alberti and his team, those who've assisted him in bringing together this remarkable group of speakers over the next couple of days, and for the other events that the college has staged during the year. And I too would like to thank the various sponsors who've generously supported all of these events, and this one in particular. I'm really pleased that the program recognizes the different lessons learned from so many conflicts. Sometimes the lessons that have been translated into medical advances, or those lessons have been translated into medical advances, and we see them continued and the development continue during peacetime in a civilian environment. At other times, they may have developed further in future conflicts. But the program also recognizes the dangers of learning lessons from the past conflict, but failing to prepare for the next. That said, no doubt many of the developments that from Iraq and Afghanistan will shape things in the future. And a couple in, in particular spring to mind, aside from the medical developments. One's the improved protection, armored protection on vehicles, which really accelerated by the application of intelligence and technology. The other is the use of combat body armor, which has so advanced during the last decade. You'll have seen lots of pictures of those of us who've deployed on operations wearing our combat body armor with your webbing now built into it, your helmets, your weapons. So let me just describe what it's like for a soldier on the ground, remembering that in the heat of summer, in Iraq it reached over 50 degrees, in Helmand over 40 degrees. When I was in Afghanistan a couple of years ago, 
Uh, I was wearing my combat body armor. I had my long-barreled weapon. I had my pistol as, as backup. I had the ammunition that needed to go with that. I had water because it was so hot. Um, helmet, other vital bits of equipment. One small day sack so that if I got stranded somewhere, I had the essentials off which to live. And I was about to get on, on a small American jet to fly from one end of the country to the other. And there were only four passengers, and the American pilot said, would you mind standing on the scales with all your equipment so we know how much fuel to put on board, because taking off at this altitude in this heat is a bit tricky. So I got on one of those large scales, industrial-sized scales. And bear in mind, when I stripped off to go to the gym, I weighed 12 and a half stone at the time. I now weighed 19 and a half stone. And that was just wearing the essential kit to be able to go out on the ground. And I wasn't carrying what the soldiers and the Marines were carrying. I wasn't having to carry loads of extra ammunition, a heavy machine gun, mortar rounds, radios. So just think what those young men and women do. And I think we should take our hats off to them, not just for their physical strength, but their determination in carrying out their duties under such circumstances. But despite the compromise with comfort, mobility, and firepower that that inevitably entails. These advantages, advance, advances have undoubtedly saved lives. Many of them are alive today who would not have survived the IEDs and the gunshot wounds had they not been wearing such prote protection. But of course it also led, as we grew from covering the chest and also the abdomen to protecting the perineum, to a different pattern of injuries to which the medical services had to react. Another really important thing to remember from the recent conflicts is the lack of an enemy air threat or a ground-to-air capability. Therefore, our use of helicopters was relatively unconstrained. That's not to take anything away from the bravery of the air crews and the medics on board who often flew in atrocious conditions just to pick up a casualty or knowing that there would be small arms fire and perhaps rocket-propelled grenades in the area where they were picking up the casualty. But this overall lack of a threat led to a situation in which we could extract casualties off the battlefield in a relatively short time, in fact, a remarkably short time. During the whole 12 months that I was the NATO medical commander for Afghanistan, the average time throughout the whole year in all the provinces, from a shout going up, man down, we need an medevac to get them off the battlefield, to getting the helicopter out, picking them up, and getting the casualty to a surgical facility was 45 minutes. Now that happened because of a unique combination of factors and that may not be reproducible in the future. Afghanistan's just a bit bigger than France, so it's a big country, but the center of it, of course, was inhospitable uh, mountainous terrain. So all of the military action was happening around the periphery, which meant that we were able to site the surgical facilities and the helicopters closely together so that there was coverage all the way around. So if a man or woman was injured, they were never far from help. And the coalition, incidentally, was 50 nations. Not many people realized just how large it was. But the majority of the 107 dedicated helicopters for Medivac that were at my disposal as the NATO medical commander, I have to say, came from the Americans. The British provided one airframe dedicated to Medivac. The Germans had a few, the Norwegians provided some, the French provided some, but over 90 of those airframes were American. We owe them a great deal of thanks for getting our casualties and others off the battlefield. 
But compare that 45 minutes that I talked about with the Falklands conflict. Still recent enough, most of us here in this, in this room remember it. Some of the people here served on that, on that operation. But in the South Atlantic, it often took six hours to get a casualty off the battlefield. Many of those Marines and paratroopers died on the field of battle, which in places like in Iraq and Afghanistan would not have happened because we'd have got them off and been able to do something. So you can see why we worry if we can't reproduce, reproduce the timely extraction of casualties in the next conflict. A military medical innovation in peace must now try to work out how we might mitigate for such a change. Before we move to the first session of our program, I'd like to reflect on a couple of other general factors. The first is the remarkable coherence that the defense medical services have brought to the contemporary care of battle casualties, and in particular, the whole of the patient journey. Admittedly, modern technology and communications help, but the weekly joint theater casualty coordination conference that Tim Hodgetts and others set up has enabled great advances in managing each patient's care pathway. The weekly teleconference run from Birmingham would connect the field hospitals in Iraq and Afghanistan with University Hospital Birmingham, the principal receiving hospital for the, for the casualties in the UK, but also on the conference call would be Headley Court. So they had really early visibility of casualties who eventually would require their level of rehabilitation and we had the RAF medical, era medical cell at RAF Fry's Norton on the conference because, of course, they were delivering the casualties. And the medical staff from the permanent joint headquarters in Northwood, from which all military, British military operations overseas are run. So this meant there was real coherence and great understanding of what was in the pipeline and the preparations that had to be made to receive the next wave of casualties. And that weekly teleconference was also complemented by the battle procedure in Birmingham. The weekly military ward round was adjusted and adapted to become a two-phased board and ward round. In the first half, the large multidisciplinary team, and it really did include everyone, not just the surgeons, but the pain team, consultant microbiologists, occupational therapists, physios, nursing staff, and everyone from the most junior to the most senior contributed to the board stage where the young doctors would present each of the cases, their clinical history, and the relevant current information so that discussion could take place and generate some well-informed options for future management. And what that meant was when they moved to the second phase on the ward, the consultants leading the ground could actually talk to the patient about those options and arrive with them at a decision on the best way forward and what was in their best interests. It was good medicine. And that in turn was complemented by the thrice daily bunker meetings as they named them, led by Professor Sir Keith Porter, where he and the other groups uh, and the other surgeons would get together three times a day to plan the operating lists out for the next few days to make sure that they were catering for the needs of the casualties already on the ward, as well as the anticipated demand from the weekly teleconference because they knew what was going to be coming in on the next aircraft. But the other beauty of it was that the people of Birmingham and the West Midlands benefited because the civilian patients in the hospital were slotted into this in accordance with their clinical priorities. So everybody benefited. At this point, can I just say something about civilian hospitals? 
There's been a lot of debate over the last decade or so. Much has been spoken about the fact that we no longer have military hospitals, Navy hospitals, RAF hospitals. But I think the media, and slowly the country, is understanding why we've actually arrived at the right model. This originated at the collapse of the Berlin Wall, so another anniversary 25 years ago. There was undoubtedly a need for a peace dividend because we no longer needed to maintain a standing army in Germany. So the move was to close all the service hospitals. They were very expensive to run and maintain. But it went further than that and included the move to close the ones in the UK as well. It wasn't just a peace dividend though. We had recognized that they were all too small and too quiet and we weren't getting the throughput of patients to maintain the skills of all the hospital staff at the requisite level. So that's why we moved the armed services hospital staff into busy district general hospitals so that they could hone and maintain their clinical skills to then take out on operations. What was done in conjunction with that was they set up the Royal Centre for Defence Medicine in Birmingham to mitigate for the risk of loss of military medical knowledge to make sure that those who served in the armed forces also had the military medical preparation as well as the military operational preparation from their, from their units to prepare them to go out on operations. And there were really a couple of benefits. One was obviously maintaining their clinical skills and I think it's been proven to work because of the amazing job that they've done. But the other aspect to this, which was perhaps not anticipated at the time, was that medicine was changing. And now that we've gone into so many super specialties, in order to look after a complex battle casualty who's su survived and been kept alive by the care in the forward lines in the field hospital, on the MERT helicopter, and by the RAF flying him or her back, they have such complex injuries which don't respect anatomical or physiological boundaries. And you really need a multidisciplinary skill team with so many different skills to be able to look after these casualties. In Birmingham, they were able to offer us up to 38 different clinical specialties in that hospital. Now, we didn't need to call on all of them, but we could call on the ones we needed. And the casualties benefited from that. And we wouldn't have been able to do that in a service hospital. So the description I used use when I was trying to explain it to the, to the admirals and the generals and the air marshals was that we had re reached a situation in which we were now running a joint and combined operation. Joint because it had members of all three armed services, the Navy, the Army, and the RAF medical services working together, and combined, not in the traditional sense with a NATO partner, but on this occasion, combined with the NHS. So as is always the case in conflict, the medical services, both uniformed and civilian, have done a great deal to sustain the physical and the moral components of British fighting power. There's no doubt that the advances made and the knowledge of how good the medical care is has been a significant factor in maintaining the morale of the troops and enabling commanders and the men and women under them to do their job in the most difficult military operations. We've also been helped enormously by the service charities and the generosity and support of the British public. All of these things help to sustain morale. But at the end of the day, we should always remember that this is about what Bryn Parry of Help for Heroes calls the blokes, the boys and girls that go out 
and do the business. The young men and women of our armed forces are ordinary young men and women. That's how they would describe themselves. But they do the most extraordinary job on our behalf. We do celebrate the fact that so many have survived injuries that in previous conflicts would have caused their demise, but they will face challenges during the rest of their lives that most of us do not, whether that's due to physical or psychological trauma. There is no doubt that the care in the NHS must continue and must be complemented by the assistance from our many service charities. Tomorrow, Professor Jones will talk about MTBI, mild traumatic brain injury, perhaps a signature injury of the Afghanistan campaign, but I would say that also goes alongside the amputees or the multiple amputees who have survived and gone on to lead fulfilling lives. But along, alongside that, we must remain on our guard for the late presentations of cases of PTSD because of the long latent time that often exists. And the other problem that we know from our psychiatric colleagues is one related to alcohol dependence. Both for PTSD and for alcohol, there is quite a similar pattern. In the regular forces, there is a background level of PTSD at about 5% actually. For amongst those who've not deployed. Amongst those who've deployed, it's a bit higher, a couple of percentage points higher at the moment. And I hope it stays there and doesn't become much larger. But we have to be on guard against that. For alcohol dependency, amongst the regular forces, it's actually quite high, in the army anyway, approaching 10%. But of those who've deployed, it goes up to about 15% is a high figure, but it's particularly prevalent amongst those who've seen combat. And for the reservists, the background rate of PTSD is lower, it's actually about 2%, but again, it rises by a couple of percentage points in those who've deployed and particularly been in combat. The same is true of the alcohol amongst the reservists. The alcohol dependency is lower than in the regular forces, but again, it rises um, almost doubles in those who've deployed and been in combat. And the other factor with which there's an association is the frequency of deployments. Not the total length of time that you spend on deployments. The problem seems to arise if you don't have the, if you breach what are called the Harmony Guidelines and you don't have sufficient time back in the UK or Germany or wherever you were stationed to recover and rehabilitate, recharge the batteries before you next deployed on operations. So we owe those young men and women a great deal of thanks. We also owe you a great deal of thanks, whether through your professional contributions or through your personal contributions to the service charities. As a recently retired soldier, I'd just like to thank each and every one of you for the support which you give to the men and women of the armed forces. 250 years ago, John Hunter had returned from France and Portugal, where he'd been on a military campaign. I think he'd be proud of the young men and women in today's armed forces. I think he'd be exceptionally proud of the medical services and the contribution that surgery and your college has made. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.
uh, Brigadier Parker. Uh, you've already made the important link then as we leap back from Helmand to Hunter and we begin our long historical journey over two days. And who better to start us with than my predecessor, Dr. Simon Chaplin, who quite apart from his uh, professional skills is no mean historian. And we're delighted that he was able to kick off the conference talking about Hunter because his research into Hunter and his collection is not only, to my mind, among the best work done on Hunter, but also uh, incredible contribution to cultural and medical history of the 18th century more generally. And I would be this polite anyway, even if he hadn't just been promoted to Director of Culture and Society for the Wellcome Trust. Simon. Thank you very much, Sam. Um, and it's a great pleasure to be back here. Uh, about four and a half years after I left. Uh, I have a horrible feeling, I hope I'm proven wrong, I have a horrible feeling that what I'm about to say about John Hunter might mean it's four and a half years before I'm invited back again. Because I'm going to try and put John Hunter's work as, a, as an army surgeon in perspective. And I think in doing that, I'm aware there's a conventional narrative that describes Hunter's connection with military surgery, which echoes a broader account of Hunter's life and work, an account that actually is very important to the history of this college in which Hunter plays the role of um, kind of an iconic figure, someone who has shaped the surgical profession and around whom the surgical profession has been shaped, a quite deliberate process of making history. So in this account, uh, John Hunter young, gifted anatomist and would-be surgeon, joins the army to escape the noisome environment of his brother William's anatomy school. Serving with the army on Belle-Ile and in Portugal, John Hunter reveals and revels in his nature as both an inquisitive naturalist come natural philosopher and iconoclastic surgeon, battling the narrow-minded uh, orthodoxy of his colleagues and superiors while gathering evidence that will help him formulate a new and more effective approach to the surgical man management of battlefield trauma. On his return from service, Hunter's commitment to surgery is rewarded through professional appointment while his experimental pursuits earn him the approbation of London's scientific elite. He rises through the ranks, gaining royal appointments and ending up eventually as Surgeon General and Inspector General of Hospitals for the British Army. In his new role, comeuppance is delivered. Honest John sweeps away a corrupt and inefficient system of patronage and favor, introducing a system of promotion for army surgeons based on what and not who they know. And he also promulgates his approach to wound management, banishing unnecessary radical intervention in favor of conservative regimes. Work that's described in this, a book published sadly just after his untimely death in 1793, his treatise on the blood, inflammation, and gunshot wounds. I'm gonna argue that most of this is wrong. And in talking about Hunter as an army surgeon, I want to ask two questions. First. What was John Hunter's impact on the army? But secondly, what was the army's impact on John Hunter? And I'm going to argue it's the second that's actually more important to understanding John Hunter's life and career. 
And if you wanted to twist the words of John F. Kennedy, I think the story of John Hunter is not about what he did for his country, but about what his country did for him. Now, I think in doing this, it's useful to go through chronologically Hunter's work, both as an army surgeon in the Belle-Ile campaign and in Portugal, to talk briefly about the work after his return to London and then, towards the end of his life, look at his role as Surgeon General. Um, I suspect that many of you are familiar with John Hunter's life, so I apologise if I'm repeating stuff that you already know, but I think it is important to have this context. So, John Hunter's born in 1728, uh, the eldest, this is the youngest of ten children, he has a late and unorthodox start to the medical profession, so he doesn't go through a traditional apprenticeship uh, training or take a medical degree. Instead, he begins his career bred up to anatomy in the dissecting rooms of his brother, William. Uh, William, by that stage, a successful man midwife, surgeon, and teacher of anatomy working in London. That's how John Hunter enters his medical career, working in a dissecting room. From there... Under William's guidance, he trains as a surgeon. He attends the lectures given by William Cheselden and Percival Pott. He becomes a house pupil at St. George's Hospital. He carries on working with William for about 10 years. And during this time, he develops his skill as an anatomist, particularly his practical skills in dissection and the making of anatomical preparations, so preserving bits of body part. He developed his interest in experimental research, part of a broader culture of experimental natural philosophy, what we would nowadays call science, active in London in the second half of the 18th century. And partly through William and partly through his own technical skills, and I emphasize the technical element of Hunter's work, he brings himself to the attention of other medical and natural philosophical practitioners in London at the time. One of the reasons I believe that John Hunter was able to achieve such success in his career is because of his technical expertise. And we see this both in the 1750s and then after his return from Portugal in the 1760s when he's being commissioned by other surgeons and physicians to do work on their behalf. Interestingly, one of the physicians who commissions John Hunter to conduct post-mortems for him is John Pringle who had been physician general to the army in the 1740s, was to become president of the Royal Society. One important connection, I think, that is often overlooked. And it's this excellent hand for the business, as Pringle described Hunter's skill, that I think gives John Hunter the first lift in his career. However, by the, the end of the 1750s, by all accounts, the lifestyle of working in the sector room is taking a toll on John Hunter. Uh, his health is reported to be poor in 1759, and as a result of this, he decides to stop working with his brother. I think there is no doubt that life in the dissecting room was extremely unhealthy. There is plenty of evidence of other anatomists at the time suffering both ill health or dying from what we would now call a needle stick injury uh, or other injuries picked up in the dissecting room for us not to discount the impact on Hunter's health. I suspect too, however, that Hunter's decision to leave his brother's school was also driven by the sibling rivalry that existed between them. Why do I think that? Well, because we know that towards the end of the 1750s, William and John Hunter were engaged in a series of priority disputes arguments about who had seen things first. Those disputes took place with Ale Alexander Munro in Edinburgh and with Percival Pott in London. 
In both of them, the hunters acted together to defend their joint reputation. But crucially, in doing so, William always assumed seniority. It was William who made the discoveries, John acted in his support. Now, there's no hint in, at the time of dissension between the brothers, but we do know later that John Hunter uh, became extremely unhappy with his brother at William's assumption of priority. And that, in fact, those priority disputes turned from being disputes between the hunters and others to being disputes between the two hunter brothers. I now suspect that the rumblings of this sibling rivalry were in large part behind John Hunter's decision to leave the dissecting room in Covent Garden at the end of the 1750s. We shouldn't forget also, however, that there were plenty of other reasons for wanting a break from dissection. This one lovely contemporary depiction of the two brothers dissecting by John Hamilton Mortimer. So whatever the cause of the um, rupture between the brothers and John Hunter's departure, there was some sense of loyalty between them because William Hunter played a role in helping John get a position with the army. John Hunter was appointed a staff surgeon to the expedition to Belle-Isle off the coast of Brittany. Uh, in doing so, he was under the patronage of the then Surgeon General, Robert Adair. Robert Adair and William Hunter were friends. William Hunter certainly interceded on his brother's behalf to help secure John his position. Whether out of kindness or because he too was keen to see John leave the school, we shan't know. What we do know is that John Hunt, William Hunter didn't waste any time in replacing John. He recruited William Hewson, another very able anatomist, to take John's place in his school. So under Adair's patronage, John Hunter joined the expedition to Belle-Isle. For those of you who don't know where Belle-Isle is, it's uh, marked on the map there. It's off the southern coast of Brittany. Uh, so this is, this is a, um, October 1760 is when John Hunter accepts his commission. Uh, the spring of 1761 is when the expedition is launched. We're in the middle of the Seven Years' War, which is effectively a global conflict. Um, and this part of it is involving the conflict between England and France. Belle-Isle is seen as a strategic possession because it might form a base from which the British Navy could control its blockade along the Atlantic coast of France. It turns out in practice that Belle-Isle wasn't nearly as useful as they thought it might be for that purpose. Um, its main value, I think, um, strategically, was that at the end of the war it was swapped for Minorca, which was, I think, a much more valuable possession. It was also a very difficult uh, island to take, uh, largely impregnable. There's no obvious landing sites, uh, lots of cliffs, uh, defended by a central uh, uh, city in which, or central town in which there was a large fortification, one of Vauban's fortifications, that was regarded as very difficult to take. So John Hunter sets out with the expedition. They make a first landing on the 8th of April, which is repulsed with heavy casualties. Over 500 men lost or injured in that first assault. John Hunter at this time is serving aboard the hospital ship Betty. Hospital ship, I think, used in a very loose sense at the time. And certainly during this period, John Hunter would have had exposure to significant numbers of casualties. We also know during this period, John Hunter was stricken with seasickness. So how able he was to contribute to surgical care is at least open to doubt. 
but we know there were at least casualties to be cared for. The first assault was repulsed, a second one was launched a couple of weeks later, which was successful. The British troops occupied most of the island, they laid siege to the central fortification, the citadel, and after, I think, about six weeks, finally succeeded in taking that too. At that point, the British had complete occupation of the island. So, at this stage, John Hunter was back on dry land, back on Belle Isle, one of a number of staff surgeons working in the hospital on Belle Isle. And just to explain about the medical setup there, so there would have been regimental surgeons and surgeons mates for each of the regiments on Belle Isle. There was also the central hospital, the expedition hospital. That was what John Hunter was attached to as a staff surgeon. So he was part of a medical team that was separate to the embedded medical teams, if you like, for each of the regiments. Now, in the first few weeks on Belial, Hunter was also receiving and treating casualties. So during this period, he was certainly observing injuries received from both gunshot wounds and from cannon fire. And during this period, he later said, he started to have doubts about the way in which such wounds were being treated. In particular, he opposed the then prevailing treatment of opening the wound, dilatation sometimes done to remove debris from within the wound. John Hunter said it could and should be done if there were bone splinters to be removed, but he argued against it being done as a matter of course, and he used in support of his argument observations on soldiers who had been injured in one of the first assaults on Belial and through simple neglect had not been treated, and he said that in those cases they made a good recovery, and the presence of a good recovery in the absence of surgical treatment was a good indication to him that surgical treatment should not be given in future. Generally true of Hunter's approach as a surgeon, a very conservative approach and preferring a minimal approach to surgery wherever possible. It was not, however, received warmly by his fellow surgeons. And one gets a hint both of uh, John Hunter's character and their frustration in John Hunter's letters home. John Hunter describes them as a damn disagreeable set and he said that both the senior surgeon, William Young, and the senior physician, Edward Blythe, were as unfit for their employment as the devil was to reign in heaven. <laughs> now, it's not untypical of John Hunter to have this kind of slightly tense relationship with his professional colleagues. It was later to characterize his relationship with some of the other surgeons at St. George's Hospital. There is no doubt, however, that in this case there was at heart at least a disagreement about the right approach to be taken. What's important, however, is that John Hunter struggled to persuade them that they should be doing the same thing that he was doing. Moreover, with the hostilities concluded, John Hunter found, as with, I guess, most military campaigns of the time, that the vast majority, almost all of the cases he was seeing, apart from those of accidental injury, were of disease. So there simply weren't any more cases of gunshot wounds to be treated on Belle Isle. Now, the cases of disease declined slightly as summer passed into winter. By early 1762, John Hunter had been left in sole charge of the hospital on Belle Isle, uh, something which may be a reflection of his popularity with his fellow surgeons as much as his capability in running the hospital. Uh, either way, it suited him and it seemed to suit them too. Uh, he reveled in his um, new authority as a kind of medical army of one, 
Uh, he wrote to his brother that he was Surgeon General, Deputy Purveyor, and Inspector and Director of the Regimental Hospital. Um, but I think underneath that joke, there was something serious, which was John Hunter's very strong desire to use his time in the army to gain some professional advancement. And that's not a criticism of John Hunter. That's why many surgeons took an army uh, position. And what was crucial was that not just he should uh, achieve some professional prominence, but that his work should be drawn to the attention of those back in London. So in writing back to William, he was explicit that William then tell Robert Adair what he, John Hunter, was doing so that his uh, relationship with Adair might be strengthened. I think the other thing that's important about the relation, or John Hunter's work on Belle Isle is that it brought him into contact with a number of other people who would prove both influential and useful in his later life. So among them were several of the officers who accompanied the campaign, and I think one of them, uh, Brigadier, later General Thomas uh, Desagulier, is key to that. Desagulier was an artillery officer. He was actually the youngest son of a natural philosopher, John Theophilus Desagulier, who was a leading member of the Royal Society. And like his father, um, Thomas was a keen mathematician and engineer. After he returned to London, he was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society in 1763. John Hunter was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society in 1766. And Desagulier was one of a number of supporters of John Hunter within the Royal Society. So that connection, having saved Desagulier's life on Belial, that connection proved very useful to Hunter in all kinds of ways on his return. Another notable patient was Robert Hume. Uh, a regimental surgeon with Burgoyne's Light Dragoons who was treated by Hunter for an orbital emphysema. And, of course, Hunter was to cross paths with him, again, quite a lot more in Portugal in the next campaign, but also back in London because, of course, John Hunter ended up marrying Robert Hume's sister. A few other things of note. John Hunter also used his time on Belle Isle to indulge his interest in natural history and to acquire some preparations to bring back to London. This is a preparation of a scapula showing a bullet wound. I don't know for sure that this is one that was collected from Belle Isle. In fact, I suspect it probably wasn't. But it is recorded that Hunter did bring back a number of uh, preparations showing gunshot wounds from Belle Isle. He also conducted numerous experiments on lizards on Belle Isle uh, over the winter and into the spring of 1762, interested both in digestion, so the way in which they digested over the course of hibernation, and the process of autotomy, the shedding of a tail as defensive mechanism and its regeneration. Uh, so Belial gave Hunter the opportunity to pursue some interests other than medical or surgical work. By the spring of 1762, attention was turning to a new offensive, this time in Portugal, uh, with which Britain was allied and in which British merchants had substantial and lucrative commercial interests. So there was an alliance between England, Britain, and Portugal. Uh, the alliance was driven as much by the huge commercial interest that British merchants had, particularly in the Brazil trade. So uh, there was a lot of British exporting to Portugal, a lot of Portuguese goods exported back to Britain, there was also a steady flow of gold from South America back through Portugal to London, not all of which was um, channeled through uh, 
uh, official means. So there was a strong commercial interest, I think, in protecting Portugal when the Spanish threatened to invade in 1762. One of the problems, however, that was that Portugal was a poor country. Its capital, Lisbon, had been almost completely destroyed in an earthquake 10 years previously. As a country, it was utterly impoverished, probably the poorest part of Western Europe at the time. Famine was, or shortage of food, was um, widely prevalent. And there was a real problem because the Spanish invasion and the British defense of Portugal were largely predicated on the troops being self-supporting, able to feed themselves off the land in Portugal. And for neither case was that true. The Portuguese themselves could barely feed themselves. So from the start, it was a problematic campaign. Uh, even more so than the campaign to capture Belle-Ile, there was very little fighting. Nothing that we would regard today as a, as a major battle. And Hunter's work as a surgeon reflected that. He did an enormous amount of work in Portugal. I think that should be respected. He traveled very widely. Uh, almost all of the work he was doing, setting up and managing hospitals, was, was treating soldiers who were suffering from disease, infectious disease or the consequences of hard marching. Uh, plenty of examples in Portugal, one notorious one of men dying from heat stroke from being forced to march in hot temperatures without water. Drinking water was regarded as a terrible mistake at the time. Um, and I think the campaign proved very difficult for all these reasons. Transport within Portugal was also extremely difficult, the absence of good roads. And in John Hunter's case, and more broadly for the medical officers accompanying the campaign, the lack of any dedicated transport proved to be a serious issue, one that was reflected and, and rectified in later campaigns, but not for some time. Uh, Hunter struggled, as, with, as did his fellow surgeons, to get uh, suitable wagons or boats to evacuate casualties back to hospitals where they could be treated properly. Hunter argued very strongly in letters back to Lord Loudon, who was the overall commander for the campaign, suggesting that a flying hospital could be established, as had previously been done in campaigns in Flanders. However, there was a strong presumption against such flying hospitals, temporary hospitals, being established during the Portugal campaign. Again, Hunter enjoyed a rather fractious relationship with his fellow surgeons. Uh, this one in particular, Francis Tompkins, uh, another of the uh, uh, staff surgeons attached to uh, the central hospital, Tompkins clearly had a slightly stronger relationship with his patrons in London than Hunter did with his, because when they were picking a surgeon to go out with the army on campaign, Tompkins was very clear that he was going to be staying in Lisbon, and that it was John Hunter who was going to go out and do the hard slogging around. Uh, I don't think that the relationship with Tompkins was entirely down to Hunter's character. Tompkins was, by all accounts, a very difficult man to get on with and uh, entered into disputes with virtually all of the other medical staff on the campaign. Um, an interesting thing about the campaign is that, again, John Hunter was keen to seek opportunities to advance himself. And there was one point at which the attrition rate amongst the medical staff, so the medical staff were as susceptible to disease and um, injury resulting from uh, travel as the soldiers they were treating, the attrition rate was so high that there was no physician left 
accompanying a campaign. And John Hunter lobbied to have himself appointed as physician. In this, he was unsuccessful, but it was interesting that he made the effort. He wrote back to William saying that if he were to succeed, I shall be a doctor as well as the best of you. So a sense of sibling rivalry emerging there. Very important in the later career of John Hunter and in the subsequent uh, uh, biography of John Hunter, particularly in relation to the college, the idea that John Hunter was always committed to being a surgeon. Here was one point where actually he showed that he would much rather have been a physician. Who knows how the history of both John Hunter and this college might have been different if John Hunter had become Dr. Hunter during the Portuguese campaign. In terms of the uh, work that was going on, um, there was also time for John Hunter again to indulge his interest in collecting, so he wasn't simply uh, consumed by medical matters. Uh, while he was in Lisbon towards the end of the campaign, he did a number of experiments on the organs of hearing in fishes, in which he uh, observed fish in a pond, got a colleague to fire a gun from behind a bush so there could be no reflection to see whether fish would react to the noise and observe that they did. I suspect that was one of the few occasions during the Portuguese campaign when John Hunter heard a gun being fired. For the most part, I think there was very little conflict involved in his work there. He returned back to London in May 1763. It would be wrong to suggest that on his return, Hunter found that his two years of active service led to immediate opportunity. However, he had the accumulated back pay, so the 10 shillings a day that he'd earned as uh, surgeon, 20 shillings for the period when he was director of the hospital on Belle Isle, uh, and he was also then entitled to draw half pay. He also had a range of useful contacts. He had research and specimens that he'd begun and could start to share with new friends in the Royal Society. Uh, on the back of his both surgical and natural historical interests, he was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society in 1766. A year later, he became both a member of the Company of Surgeons and Surgeons in St. George's Hospital and began to lecture in the early 1770s, drawing quite explicitly in his lectures on his army experience. So making great play of the fact he had served as an army surgeon in describing how one should treat wounds in his lectures. So from that point of view, his army service was both practically and rhetorically useful to John Hunter. In the 15 years from the start of the 1770s to the mid-1780s, Hunter achieved both medical and social prominence in London, partly due to his burgeoning reputation as both a naturalist and an anatomist, partly also due to his marriage to Robert Hume's sister Anne and the um, social contacts that came through uh, her network. He, his rise was also helped by his appointment as surgeon extraordinary to King George III, and he acquired a number of leading politicians among his patients. Among them was William Pitt the Younger, on whom Hunter operated, actually carried out the operation in Downing Street in 1786. Uh, Hunter was also a close friend of Lord Auckland, who was a regular visitor to Hunter's houses, both at Earl's Court and Leicester Square. And so, given all of that, I think probably it's not a surprise that when a vacancy for Deputy Surgeon General arose in 1786, the same year that he operated on Pitt, that it would be Hunter's name that's put forward for it. So what had happened was that um, uh, David Middleton, um, who had, had died, 
uh, Adair had succeeded him as surgeon, having been deputy, had succeeded him as uh, surgeon general. Hunter then became uh, deputy to Adair. So one sees these systems of patronage tying John Hunter in and bringing him in again to the military world. But it's as much the connections that do that as John Hunter's practical experience as an army surgeon. And this then is the second part of John Hunter's military career as deputy surgeon general from 1786 to 1790 and then as surgeon general and inspector of hospitals from 1790 until his death in 1793. In fact, Hunter's role was greater still than those two uh, titles described because the incapacity of the physician general, Sir Clifton Wintringham, meant that John Hunter was for at least some of 1793 effectively director general for all of the medical services to the army. His contribution as surgeon general, however, I think was comparatively limited. The one big thing that Hunter did was to argue very strongly and to enforce that through action, the um, system of preferment for appointment to surgical positions in the army. Hunter said that in future there should be a strict system of promotion, that regimental and hospital mates should be preferred as appointees to staff surgeon and to regimental surgeon positions rather than regimental surgeon positions in particular being in the gift of the colonel of the regiment as they had been. And Hunter in his correspondence fought very fiercely to protect this. Was it a good thing? I don't know. I mean it sounds good in practice, the idea that you're re respecting experience. Undoubtedly however there were plenty of people serving as hospital mates who didn't have appropriate experience and had been there trapped there for good reason. It was also clear that if you wanted to progress people in that way, you need to be sure that they wanted to progress. So one of the uh, uh, complications was that a hospital mate could earn more than a regimental surgeon. And therefore, the incentive for a hospital mate to become a regimental surgeon was rather limited. So in many cases, despite arguing that they, these were people well qualified to take the position, Hunter found it very hard to persuade them to do so. There is interestingly very little evidence of Hunter using his position as Surgeon General to push forward um, any specific ideas about the management of either injuries or disease in the army. There's two exceptions to that. One is that John Hunter used his role as Surgeon General to advance the cause of his namesake, Dr. John Hunter, a physician who had served with the army in the West Indies and wrote a very important book about the treatment of disease for the army in Jamaica and more broadly in hot climates. Hunter cited this book and said that it should be taken note of and used as a guide for treatment by army physicians and surgeons. Uh, the second area in which Hunter was influential was pushing for uh, uh, a more conservative approach to the treatment of hernia. So the reduction of hernia using manipulation or rest and then uh, treatment using trusses. And in doing so, he explicitly praised the work of someone called Thomas Brand, a surgeon turned truss maker who by chance had also been a student of John Hunter. I think it was a well-meant policy. What Hunter didn't do in his role was make any general policy decision about the treatment of gunshot wounds. Now we know that Hunter was interested in this because after his untimely death in 1793, uh, his work was published. 
uh, brought to press by his brother-in-law, Everard Hume. The treatise on the blood inflammation and gunshot wounds is regarded as, as kind of John Hunter's most important contribution, I think, in terms of the, both the theory of uh, wound healing and also the management of wounds. But I think there's something interesting about the timing of it. This is a work that in his introduction, Hunter said had been gestating for some time. Gestating, in fact, since his time on Belle-Isle. In his introduction, he said the following pages treating of inflammation were first arranged in the year 1762 at Belle-Isle after the complete reduction of that place. And he went on to say that the truth of these observations during the siege of Belle-Isle was put to the test. But what's striking about the book is actually how little reference there is to specific cases encountered during Hunter's army service. There are some, but not many. And in fact, there is as much space given to one instance of a death by gunshot in London in the 1780s as there was to his experience in Portugal. And I think in terms of the publication, there was a degree of opportunism intended in bringing this out to coincide with his return to service as Surgeon General. And I wonder whether Hunter had in mind that he might then use his position to promulgate the book in the same way he promulgated John Hunt, Dr. John Hunter's work on tropical diseases. And in the preface, he does make this explicit link between his work in Belle-Isle, his work as Surgeon General, to suggest that that transition from Army Surgeon to Surgeon General validated his findings, that his experimental research mirrored his ascendance through the military ranks. So in summary, I began my lecture by suggesting that the Army's contribution to John Hunter might have been greater than John Hunter's contribution to the Army. That's not to undermine John Hunter's work as an Army surgeon in Portugal and Belle-Isle, but it is to reflect the nature of that experience and the modest contribution that those campaigns made to military history and of Hunter's work there to Army surgery. There is no doubt that had he continued longer in his career as Surgeon General, he might have exerted more influence. We can only speculate about that. I'm going to leave it to Mick Crumpton to say whether John Hunter did have a lasting influence on military surgery in the two decades of war that were to follow. But I think it is useful for us as historians to reflect on the rhetorical value of army service as much as its actual value. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've got some time for questions, if you care to, to take them. Um, and we're going to try to run this without roving mics, because there's quite a lot of us, and I don't think my knees could take it. So I would ask you to uh, speak loudly and clearly um, and uh, with your question. Um, and having said that, I'll open up the floor. So was regular pay and a paid holiday a factor in John Hunter joining the army? Almost certainly yes. I think it was one of the few ways in which you could earn a regular income as a surgeon uh, compared to hospital appointments, most of which were, were voluntary or attracted a very small stipend, and private practice, which was best irregular, and there was lots of competition in London for um, surgeons. 
to attract patients. So I think certainly a degree of financial stability was part of his desire. Did John Hunter want a paid holiday? I don't know. He turned out to be a very poor traveller. He never travelled abroad again. Um, he certainly wasn't a fan of sea travel. Uh, he begged not to be sent to the West Indies uh, when he was serving on Belial because he feared the transatlantic voyage so much. Um, so although he may have looked forward to that, I suspect looking back on that, it wasn't something he enjoyed quite as much as he thought he might do. That's a very good question. Um, so he was earning 10 shillings a day as a, a staff surgeon, 20 shillings a day when he was um, uh, director general of the hospital. Uh, I think that would have been a comfortable annual income. What I don't know is out of that how much he was having to pay uh, in uh, both for accommodation costs and subsistence. So I'm not sure about the arrangements for army surgeons at the time, how much of their subsistence was supported through the army, how much they were paying for themselves. So I can't give you a kind of net um, uh, sum for his time in the army. I suspect it was, uh, he ended up in the black rather than in the red at the end of it. And it was certainly a regular income that he wasn't receiving when he was working for his brother. So he was effectively entirely dependent on his brother before he left London to join the army. So I think just in that sense, it was better than anything he'd had before. Uh, and how did it compare to how much he then earned when he got back, when he had the half pay? Uh, so when he came back, he, was, he had his half pay. He was certainly earning money from private practice. He wasn't earning any money from teaching until uh, rather later, but he, that was the, the 1760s, I think, is when he starts working with dentists like Spence. And their work, uh, particularly tooth transplantation, could be quite lucrative. So I suspect he was picking up uh, individual fees, some of which could have been substantial. He was also doing some jobbing work. He returned on and off doing some dissection for William and for other anatomists. Uh, the money he was earning as, a, as half pay, I think, was pretty insignificant in terms of annual income by the early 1770s when he was starting to lecture and receiving fees from pupils of St. George's Hospital. <laughs> There's no comment from the frontier, anyway. <laughs> I couldn't possibly say. I'm sorry. Take the first one, um, the drug use. There's relatively little uh, drug abuse in the armed forces. Uh, it is a disciplinary matter and is dealt with as such. Uh, occasionally, uh, a, an individual may be treated with some understanding if they're young and it's a relatively innocuous error, but by and large, if you take drugs, you're out. So that acts as a very good deterrent. Uh, on the operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, when I was the medical commander out in uh, Iraq, uh, alcohol was available in the major bases. Uh, 
there was the so-called two-can rule, which had been uh, used in other places like the Balkans. Very occasionally, someone abused that. But if they did so, then they needed to be dealt with as a disciplinary matter. As a matter of fact, the medical group in Basra was dry. And uh, I was based in the divisional headquarters in a different location. Uh, but as I also wore the Red Cross armband, I chose to be dry too, to show that allegiance to the medical troops in, in theatre. Uh, and quite rightly so, I think, because you never knew when you were going to be called upon whether it was as part of the clinical team or indeed in the headquarters, if we had to manage an incident at any time of day or night, we needed to be as sharp as they were. Uh, and I think it's much better to be dry on operations, to be perfectly honest. In Afghanistan, it was, as I said, it was a coalition of 50 nations. The Americans were the driving force and the American general order number one was no alcohol. So, Amer so Afghanistan was actually a dry theater. I have to admit, the, the French general somehow managed to get some Gevray-Chambertin through, but uh, uh, that was for, for entertainment purposes, I believe. Um, so actually in theatre, no, not, not, not a problem. Um, and uh, I, I am an advocate of the idea that you go dry on operations. It's a serious business out there, and you need to be capable of doing a job. Just to add, in the 18th century, that wasn't true. Mr. Barnett. Uh, a question for Simon. Did the, the, the implications of from an early stage uh, undercarriage of established practice that wasn't how you were perceived by Western scholars? How long did it, did it take, and when was there a time that, that changes in practice were taken, being taken abroad by the, by the military, with bearing in mind your particular background? Or did it indeed only happen after the British publication of your book decades later? I don't know, and I'm going to leave that to Mick to talk about. Uh, the question there was about the uh, uh, impact of changes that uh, Hunter would have wrought, and we'll hear that from Nick. I think what I can say is that Hunter's views were um, on inflammation were very well known. Uh, his views on gunshot wounds would have been known to his students. He had a number of influential students, um, but his students weren't huge in number. So compared to some of the other lecturers in London, there were comparatively few students who went through um, Hunter's course. A lot more later who said they'd gone through Hunter's course, but the ones who actually did, comparatively few in number. So I think in terms of dissemination of ideas, given that Hunter didn't publish his work on gunshot wounds, uh, didn't come out until after his death, I suspect that um, it was quite slow to, to spread simply in terms of the spread of information, let alone its then implementation in practice. Please. I'm I don't know whether the whether Carr's hospital was built for the campaign. I mean, it was it was a comparatively short campaign, so it would have been a pretty swift build process if that were the case. There was, however, a very strong connection between uh, Britain and Portugal before and after, and uh, British uh, builders and architects were involved in the 
for the very slow reconstruction of Lisbon after the earthquake, I suspect it's more likely to be in the context of the reconstruction of Lisbon and to be funded by uh, the commercial interests uh, in Portugal than to be directly linked to the campaign. But if anyone can correct me on that, then I'd be happy to be corrected. And I suspect knowledge of the rum Russian will be in the room somewhere. Uh, I have actually signed off a rum Russian <laughs> in, my, in my past. Um, it was uh, a tradition that carried on, I think, until fairly recently. I believe it has now gone. Um, and if anything, it was really just a means of uh, boosting morale. There, there, were, there are two things, really, about the rum ration. One was that, uh, you, well, the quartermaster and the medical officer had to recommend it to the commanding officer. So it was a bit of a, uh, old thieves getting together and uh, realising that maybe this, this was an occasion when the troops' might, morale might be picked up by a little tot. It was a little tot. It wasn't going to do much. Because um, the sort of circumstances in which you found yourself signing this off probably meant it was cold, wet, bloody miserable, and they needed cheering up. And of course, you wouldn't want to be giving alcohol to dilate all the blood vessels in the periphery. But, you know, frankly, there was so little. <laughs> and I don't, I don't think most of them drank it anyway. <laughs> the other thing was the tradition of gunfire on Christmas morning, when the officers would traditionally go around and wake up the troops with a mug of hot tea laced with rum. Quite the most revolting concoction <laughs> I've ever tried. <laughs> Please. Yeah, that's a very good question. I, I think w the, the, the question is uh, whether there is stigma associated particularly with things like uh, PTSD and therefore whilst people are still serving a reluctance to present and to seek help. Uh, and does that then translate into turning to alcohol as a source of uh, comfort or as a potential solution as they see it? I think with all mental disorders, there is still, unfortunately, a tendency uh, to, uh, to, to hide it and to bury it and not to open up about it. I think collectively as a society and the armed forces are a reflection of society, we're doing better to reduce the stigma associated with mental illness. Uh, I think probably in a room like this, you know, there isn't, but you're right that it exists out there elsewhere. Uh, and the armed forces are trying very hard to break it down. I think they do pretty well, by and large, actually. The boys and girls look after one another, and they will encourage you to uh, go and seek help. And I think the more that we continue to educate people about it, then obviously the greater the chance of success. Whether that's being translated into the alcohol problem, I honestly don't know. And I don't know if anyone here present has got any thought or evidence to that effect.
Yes, it does. The, the, the questioner was just uh, was, was just rem reminding the audience that uh, he, he's um, also been in the armed forces, served in the parachute regiment, and there was a tradition, you know, when things have been rough, maybe to get together, have a few beers, and sort things out that way. And you know, people who'd maybe been through very traumatic experiences seem to be perfectly all right. So maybe maybe the solution is having a drink. What I should have perhaps mentioned was something that was introduced during the last decade as a result of work by the. Uh, defence psychiatric services and that's the, the process of TRIM, trauma incident management. Uh, now this is not a medical intervention, it's something done by the chain of command and what it basically requires is certain members of a unit, ship, company, whatever, to be trained in trauma risk management and it's essentially a management tool for the chain of command. So if there's a major incident the commanding officer will call for trim to be enacted and use the people from his battalion, regiment, ship, uh, air station or whatever to go into the procedures which it involves. And essentially it's about recognising that something has happened. I think there's a, a really good example from my own experience which happened in Basra when uh, there was a patrol out on the river going under one of the bridges when an IED had been placed under the bridge and hit two of the... Uh, craft, killing some, uh, severely wounding others, and they then had to make their way with uh, one boat being towed with lots of casualties on board both uh, craft to get back to Basra Palace uh, where they could land. And of course, by the time they arrived, everyone knew what had happened. There were medics on the waterfront waiting to take the casualties off the boats. But it's about recognising everyone who might be involved in a situation like that. So when Trim was enacted... They thought about everyone who'd been affected by this and they get everyone who might have been affected into a room and just talk it through. And importantly, what they've done is they've registered all the individuals. So it wasn't just the people on the boats. It wasn't just the medics that went down to the, to the dockside. It was, for example, the signaller in the battalion headquarters who was receiving the messages over his radio, knowing that some of his mates had just been killed and others were badly wounded. So... By capturing everyone, what it then meant was that the chain of command could keep an eye on their men and women over the coming months, and about a month later, they would probably have a short review, and then the trim team would go into the commanding officer and say, everything's looking okay at the moment, but maybe at the three-month point, someone might note notice that actually Billy from Mortars is not the same guy that we brought out at the beginning of this tour. And it means then that his commanding officer can have a chat, or his, his OC, his platoon commander, or maybe even his company sergeant major, someone who, who can perhaps relate to him and get to him can, can say, look, why don't you just go and have a chat with the doc, if nothing else? So I think Trim's been a, a good move because it puts it into the chain of command, it destigmatizes it, um, everyone recognizes that you're there to look after your mates uh, and the medics are there if you need a bit of professional help. So I think that's, that's been a good move. I'll take the final question, if I may. Um, uh, unless it's, it's a burning question for Simon. Um, I was curious, actually, reflecting as you were talking about this, that um, John Hunter, as we can see upstairs, was kind of busy in the 1790s. Um, how did he find, I mean, you commented that he wasn't as effectual as he might have been, but how, how much time was he taking up being Surgeon General and, for that year, uh, Physician General? I didn't mean to suggest he, he, he could have been more effective. I think he was a very assiduous uh, Surgeon General. And he had a, an assistant appointed to him to support the administrative workload that came with it. So there was a, um, a secretary who took care of all... And there is a significant amount of correspondence that survives that uh, reflects his, his output. 
I think it was mostly a question of desk-based work, if you can call it that. Uh, so what Hunter didn't do, and he admits in his letters, was to go and visit um, any of the hospitals. He certainly didn't see any of the um, overseas um, campaign arrangements. He relied on people reporting back to him just about the UK hospitals. He did in inspect some of the facilities in London, but that was as much as he did. So I think it, it was mostly a desk-based exercise, and from that point of view, easier to reconcile with his other work. That, by that stage, Everard Hume had taken over a large part of the lecturing work from John Hunter, so he was also able to reduce his commitment there. It, it, it didn't end well for him, given his um, untimely death, as you keep saying. And the irony is that he, had ended, he, he died after an argument with colleagues at St George's Hospital. The instigator of that argument was John Gunning, a lifelong um, uh, kind of enemy of John Hunter. John Gunning succeeded John Hunter as Surgeon General. And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, I thank both of our festivals. Simon's already connected us nicely to our next speaker, who I'll invite to the stage, please. Um, Mr. Crumplin uh, has, as I'm sure most of you will know, um, an undiminished and unrelenting enthusiasm uh, for the history of surgery and the history of military surgery in particular. And it was his uh, dynamic leadership that uh, led us in the direction that's taken us to our, to our meeting today. Um, and so without further ado, I'll hand you over to Mick to talk about uh, early 19th century military surgery. Thanks. Thank you. Um, ladies and gentlemen, good morning. I'd like to thank you, Sam, and Haley and the team for a really fantastically efficient uh, organization of this particularly relevant conference today. And this morning, I'd like to recall that which was achieved in the field of military medicine in the Royal Navy and British Army 200, 250 years ago. Now, over the Age of Enlightenment, Britain had been at war with France on six occasions, finally arriving at the conflicts against revolutionary France in 1793 and later Bonaparte, a global war that will last 22 years, incur a national crippling debt of £52 billion, and result in a greater proportional loss of life than the 1914-18 cataclysm. Now, I propose that it was during this long protracted war against France that the basis of modern field medicine was really kick-started, as a new century of scientific advances dawned. Recognizing that two centuries ago, only 20% of soldiers and 6% of sailors and marines died from battle trauma rather than disease, we should summarize the challenges facing the Georgian medical staff. The classification of disease was really quite rudimentary, except for some well-known uh, diseases that you can imagine and know about. The vectors were suspected, but there was no bacteriology or virology yet. There was an ignorance of both normal and post-traumatic physiology, and most importantly, a lack of a specifically trained and authoritative medical service, which during the 22 year lacked an awful lot of personnel through disease and lack of recruitment, because this was not a conscript army, remember. Uh, the British Army. Well, first then, on the battlefield, we can contrast the limitations of frontline care 200 years ago with that which uh, the protocols have evolved so effectively in Telic and Herrick over the last two decades. And I thank Julia Midgley for the use of this uh, uh, wonderful 
and, and rather evocative image. We can expect today fairly immediate airways and hemorrhage control with tourniquets, hemostatic dressings, uh, and so forth, interosseous transfusion. Then 10% of Nelson's Navy and a few NCOs were given tourniquets, mostly, and it was very ineffective. Also, bronchotomy was occasionally performed by enlightened surgeons, but very rarely, and it wasn't routine practice. Evacuation facilities were rather contrasting today with the MERT 42 Chinook there and the rapid progress, as we've heard, from hit to base, so level three hospital. And here we've got the few drummers and musicians that might carry a man off the field if he was lucky enough to get off. And many died for lack of transport, unfortunately. Nowadays, we have damage control resuscitation where the patient's milia is corrected and we have anesthesia. Then the only physiological lesson we learnt was that timing of surgery was important. That, by that I mean not to operate too soon after injury, but to leave time for hypovolemia to correct. And of course, there was no anesthesia and usually only post-operative analgesia. Damage control surgery today, which is so sophisticated, allows the surgeon to do minimal to preserve life while the milieu is further improved before definitive surgery. And we've got chemical and surgical control of sepsis. Then, damage control surgery was all that was feasible. If there was a part of a body that was threatening life, it had to be removed. And the anti-phlogistic regimen, a, a notoriously useless uh, promulgation of emesis, catharsis, and therapeutic venesection, did little to make the, uh, the victims better. Nutrition was actually usually pretty good because of the system of supply by people like Wellington, in the latter part of the year, uh, war anyway. But it wasn't too good for post-operative patients because they all went on a low diet, which was almost acalorific and, uh, and did nothing to please them, I'm quite sure. Rehabilitation was... Uh, on the buddy system, and it was very effective. You've only got to read the diaries of how men supported each other. It was a different environment of recovery because there was nothing else for them. Prosthe prosthetics were supplied by the Royal Chelsea and Kilmainham hospitals, but rarely arrived on time, and you often found that people did without or used a local artisan. I want to just briefly mention some army reformers. Above the line, we have the mid to late 18th century reformers, and below, those that uh, took part and evolved during the French wars. I put Professor John Thompson in there, not to exclude him, because there are many more we could talk about, but he did actually hold a chair, a Regis chair of military surgery, but north of the border. So, we've heard about Pringle already today. Um, I think his strength was in public health, he understood ventilation and enough space for each patient, camp sighting. He understood the transmission of disease. He didn't know how, obviously, clothing, diet, and climatic influence on disease. The hospital mortality out of campaign at these times was about 8 to 10%. And he had acolytes that followed him, and these took the reading material up to the French wars. And he certainly was to be regarded the father of military medicine at this time. Ranby um, was uh, the first uh, master of the company of surgeons after the breakup with the barbers. And he promoted conjoint surgical working practice, which is actually quite an important issue. Uh, it's easy in the army. It's impossible in the Navy, except in hospital. He 
preferred light dressings, and if amputation was to be decided upon, it should be done fairly soon, which was in contrast to other leading uh, proponents at that time. But unfortunately, like so many of um, his men at this time and his colleagues, uh, he believed in vigorous therapeutic venisection. And it wasn't really till about 1830 that the movement against this reprehensible practice started. Um, the surgical texts of interest were the distantly related Bell brothers, um, which were fairly non-military, unfortunately. And one has to remember that the training for these men before they went into battle and campaign um, was a, a civilian and not altogether relevant, unfortunately. We've heard very eloquently from uh, Simon about John Hunter. Uh, I, I'm actually just quoting Robert Jackson because I admire Robert Jackson. He was a very uh, outspoken and probably honest uh, military surgeon. I just don't think John Hunter had enough experience to be a leading military surgeon. That's not in any way to detract from his, his gifts elsewhere. He was a very acute clinical observer. His conservatism, I think, was influenced by observing very poor practice around him. There was little commentary by him on the control of bleeding, fracture management, and trepanation. And he was, though, a very importantly, a logical medical administrator. But all medical staff, as we've heard, should be appointed by medical people without nepotism. Army physicians had to go through service as surgeons first. Regimental mates had to go through hospital service just like our house surgeons do today. And the regimental staff did not, to be, uh, did not have to be the most uh, uh, highly qualified uh, technical surgeons. All very sensible stuff. Robert Jackson uh, really shone in the campaigns in the Low Countries in the early part of the Revolutionary Wars and in the Caribbean. His robust humanitarian care for soldiers makes remarkable reading. And he was a courageous military man as well. George James Guthrie was three times president of this college, five times vice president, and was a master surgeon. He taught well. He believed in military surgery. And he gave lectures within this college for about 16 years gratis because he's so disgusted that we never formed a military school of surgery. And he certainly was a master surgeon and brought about most of the uh, advan advantages during this, this period. But McGregor was an outstanding military surgeon. He had had experience in India and the Caribbean and um, worked with his commander-in-chief very closely indeed, each to each other's advantage. And this was a symbiotic relationship, which is actually fundamental to the success of military medicine. Um, and so he brought about a remoralization of the medical force and improved its efficiency during the Peninsular War, mostly. I'm sorry about this rather boring slide, but it shows you where John Hunter, as one of the triumvirate of surgeon and physician general and inspector of hospitals, creeps in at the beginning of the war. This is the Army Medical Board, this triumvirate, uh, kept going in this particular way till 1801, which is a long way into the war, actually. Uh, and uh, by 1809, it was still staggering along with Keat, Pepys at the bottom here, and Knight as the three uh, members. The problems were that Pepys, as a physician, ordered inappropriate qualifications for army physicians. Knight was a disruptive economist. He closed hospitals that were shortly going to be needed in conflict. They all had onerous civil duties, which greatly interfered with their duties. 
their overlapping responsibilities uh, were a problem too. And they were only actually required to work two hours a day, um, which is quite amazing. And the Commission of Military Inquiry, which was held between 1806 and 7, really brought about the demise of this governance system. And the Walteran campaign, the disaster in the Low Countries, finished it off completely. It was a, a complete disaster, and it had lasted 16 years into the war. So there was a new Army Medical Board set up in 1810. These three men, Weir, Gordon, and Kerr, all had 72 years of military service between them, and they were a much more effective body, which lasted until the end of the war. You might think about hospitals in the UK. These are mostly permanent hospitals. We mustn't forget the Ordnance Medical Department and the Irish establishment, all of whom ran very good uh, services. There are about 2,000 beds here. The important things to notice was that there was a hospital for Foreign Legion troops and also for ophthalmia set up later in the war in Bognor. We shared a lot of facilities with the Navy quite successfully, and there were quite a lot of uh, temporary hospitals set up in the southeast of Britain. There were long debates in the Army Medical Department about whether general and regimental hospitals were both necessary. And of course, it's a completely sterile argument because you must have a big general hospital for all those who are permanently disabled and can't go back into service. But the thrust to keeping wounded men near to their own line and their own comrades was a very important message during this war. And, and generally, it worked. But it took time. Recruitment and pay. Well, there were great shortages of regimental surgeons. This isn't a conscript army like the Service de Santé. And there were royal warrants which went out and uh, improved the conditions of service and pay, and they got relative ranks and so forth. And this, interestingly enough, took place nine years before the same improvements happened in the Royal Navy, which I find striking. Anyway, um, they did get the forces up to strength. And by 1803, uh, a battalion of more than uh, 500 men was allowed two assistants. Courtesy of Susan Lawrence, you can see these are pupils ward walking, uh, register, registering at London hospitals, and you can see the hype in numbers in general during the American War of Independence and the Seven Years' War, and then a huge leap during the French Wars. And these are mostly surgeons' pupils, not apothecaries and physicians. Medical cadetships were extant. I'm not sure for how long, just for a few years. Guthrie had such an, uh, a cadetship for a short while. But you can see the demand on this college and the nation's uh, medical staff. So by the end of the war, we had about 1,300 battalion surgeons, 350 hospital staff, and note how many were learning well in, in, uh, in the Peninsular War here. And we mustn't forget the Ordnance Medical Department, a very efficient little department which fused with the Army Medical Department just a year before the Crimean War. Now, the thing is that when these young men came out of rather inappropriate training, they had to adapt to mess life. They had to adapt to campaign service and pretty rough treatment some of the juniors got initially anyway. And they also had to understand how to deal with swathes of disease and overwhelming numbers of casualties. So one is forced to conclude that the battlefield was the best medical school they were going to get. I'm very interested in the war because you can divide it more or less into three sections. The first two sets of campaigns were an absolute disaster militarily, and they were very challenging to the Army Medical Department. We lost over half our 330-odd um, thousand men 
in the first, these two campaigns here, in the West Indies and the Low Countries. The middle part was full of interesting campaigns. These are some of them with interesting uh, and odd diseases. And really, by uh, 1808, 1815, the Peninsular War and Waterloo, we had to relearn a lot of the lessons because they'd been largely forgotten during this seven-year period. The Low Countries um, campaigns were difficult because we were moving retrogradely, mostly. They were very harsh conditions and the hospital and hygiene situation and bickering within the department were, 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 were reprehensible. In the West Indies, we lost about uh, 100,000 uh, men effectively with nearly 55,000 deaths due to the diseases you know quite well about. And those prized possession of the West Indies were uh, retained at high price. The interesting section in the middle, well, bubonic plague broke out in Egypt. McGregor was there, and he brought about a... Uh, it had a very high mortality, 60 to 100%, so he just got every patient with prodromal symptoms and isolated them with sentry guards until they did or did not develop the disease. And it was a very effective maneuver against uh, preventing it. Today, ophthalmia is still a very common problem. It's a ghastly um, uh, front eye uh, infection. The incidence in 1810, nine years after its pickup in Egypt, was still 2,000 in the British Army, and its treatment varied between the French and the British methods. Uh, the latter, I'm afraid, wasn't really very good. But the point is about this disease, it was the first cause for a disability pension in the British Army. I'm not going to go into combat injury. You all know, and thank you to Peter Roberts for this graph, that these uh, missiles were low energy transfer, low velocity, and by 200 uh, uh, meters, they were, they were essentially ineffective compared to modern weaponry here. At close range, they were shatteringly bad, and, and infantry relied on heavy volley fire. And the problem is these were round lead missiles which disrupted tissue and carried clothing into the wound, which was, of course, infected. Ordnance damage was unsurvivable unless it took off your limb or you had a tangential blow from it. Uh, and uh, one curious issue about these avulsion injuries by uh, ordnance uh, missiles was that the ripping of arteries was actually a safer thing on the battlefield than a clean cut by an edge weapon because when you stretch and tear an artery, the vasoconstrictive capacity is much greater. But if you look at the battle injuries in Army and Navy, these are quite large series, you can see how the uh, order is reversed. In the Army, those presenting to surgeons have two-thirds injuries caused by small arms, and in the Navy, it's by um, large lumps of iron or the shards of uh, uh, oak and, and whatnot that are hit off by them. I think to say, well, how good were these people is very, very difficult. I mean, these are general hospitals, these are regimental hospitals. This is two and a half years. I've doubled the figures here, very arbitrary, I know. But you can see how the treatment episodes over the last years of the war, and it does show you how the last part of the war was the most effective part. It took a long time to get the medical business really going and the admissions dropped, and even the mortality a little bit. This is skewed data, actually, because, of course, we're talking about, by the end of the war, the survival of the fittest patients, those who've got immunity and have know how to uh, keep going. Now, if you want to summarize the changes, you've got a new Army Medical Board, but not till 1810, militarization and regulation of the AMD by McGregor, and he was uh, really tantamount to the success of that, use of smaller hospitals wherever possible, 
isolation facilities, building of barracks in Britain with separate toilet and cooking facilities. Va vaccination variolation was successful and in the British Army it was almost compulsory in 1801. Conservatism in surgery was understood and Guthrie promoted that and improved timing of amputation. The care in selection of cases for trepanation, which believe it or not was often successful. The use of longer leg splints to prevent deformity and the better management of vascular injuries and increasing concern over the liberal use of venesection as therapy. Now, I just want to briefly go through the Royal Navy and remember that only 6% of the 104,000 naval deaths were caused by combat. What were the pro progresses in med uh, Royal Naval Medicine? Well, medical and other reformers in the Navy. The mutinies undoubtedly kick-started a lot of uh, improvements in uh, pay and conditions of service for the medical staff as well. Scurvy and smallpox were controlled by the year of Trafalgar, really. The diet of sailors was remarkably constantly maintained by a system of supply, which I'll mention later. Hospital provision was good. Uh, Hasler and Plymouth were outstanding hospitals, and you can see the fall in mortality, mostly by getting rid of smallpox and scurvy, the improvement by 1812. And Lord Barham's reforms for improvements of the status of the medical staff uh, were in place by 1805, but note that's nine years later than the army. Strange, really. Surgical achievements, well, there were interesting uh, episodes in naval surgery, repairing a trachea after an attempted suicide attempt, uh, cutting ligatures short during amputation, um, <coughs> moderate use of triage, and a four-quarter amputation successfully performed in Antigua in 1808. The medical reformers, I don't wish to miss out, there are many of them, but Gillespie and Robertson together did a lot of work on statistics and febrile illnesses, but I want to just focus on these three. And one must uh, not forget that uh, executive commanders uh, like Nelson and Vernon, who limited the alcohol and split it into two doses a day, did a lot for the health in the Navy. And also John Bell, Charles Bell's brother, who wrote a memorial after the Battle of Campertown, begging for a school of uh, naval and, and military uh, medicine, which never occurred. James Lind was, uh, if you like, the father of nautical medicine, rather like Pringle and McGregor, and like Hunter, was a man of great uh, observation. We all know about his uh, um, work on scurvy, which took so long to come into fruition, but he wrote on venereal disease, uh, malaria, and also um, effectual means of keeping sailors healthy on the job, cleanliness. Water supply worried him a lot, and he wrote about typhus and how to avoid it. But his greatest accolade, although some criticize his administration, was in the management in the, in the sort of early days of Hasler Hospital, which became an outstanding place. Gilbert Blaine, well, he wrote his uh, uh, book there, Observations on Disease of the Seaman. His great achievement to me, though, was saying that, you know, if you're a commander of a ship or a battalion or whatever, your role is as important as any medical man. And, and, and I feel personally, for instance, that the Duke of Wellington fulfilled that role admirably, and, and Nelson too. Um, he was clean on using soap and dietary reform, pushing forward the use of lemon juice and pushing the Barham reforms forward. But interestingly, it was he that rescued the Walsheran expedition 
and declared it uh, unfit to continue, and for that he was made a baronet. Thomas Trotter, it was interesting, most of these men were Scotsmen, most of them were fairly religious, most of them were abolitionists, quite interesting group of people. Trotter was uh, an outspoken, probably a bit like John Hunter, and, and argumentative where he felt things could improve. He pushed for improvements with scurvy, uh, and also he, he uh, wrote on alcohol in the Navy. He again pushed forward the barroom reforms and was an ardent hospital reformer indeed. I want to just talk briefly about diet and victualling in the Navy. Um, immunology, as we all know, is, is suppressed with extremes of uh, um, weather and uh, chronic disease like venereal disease, parasites, and uh, benign tertian malaria, and also by starvation. And one has to remember that three times between 1801 and 1810, there were very poor uh, harvests and crop failures, which decimated the French civilian population as well as causing us a great deal of problems. And all this is in the background of having to supply a matelot who ran to the four tops four and a half thousand casualties a day, uh, casualties, uh, calories a day. And in the British Army, a soldier in the peninsula, three and a half thousand. And that's a huge demand on the nation, which succeeded in producing enough beet, uh, meat. It had problems with grain, and we had to import from America, which was politically rather dodgy, but we did do, do that. And the supply came out from, this is a victualling yard at Deptford on the Thames, but there were also a lot of victualling yards on the south coast. Here they had coopers and brewers and slaughterers and bakers, and they worked prolifically to supply the British Army with convoy systems. Um, the demand of a first-rate line of battleship was around three tons of water a day, uh, 80, 800 uh, pounds of meat, salted meat and biscuit, for an army of 60,000 in 1813, it would need 44 tons of bread biscuit a day and 106 cattle slaughtered each day. And I think you're getting the message that we did pretty well by the end of the war in the supply of those things. 150,000 gallons of lemon juice was supplied from the Mediterranean in one year for the Royal Navy. In 1809, they started using metal water tanks because the water went off so frequently in wooden coopered barrels. And I would like to emphasize, despite all the adverse and sensible comments on alcohol, that it probably provided over half the calories for the armed services at this time. Um, medical staff reforms, we haven't really mentioned them really. Physicians had to go through surgical service. Um, surgeons' pay increased. Um, mates were renamed assistants. The drugs were free, but still at a cost of 15 to 20 guineas. They had to buy their own capital instrument set and they got a uniform. Here he is, the surgeon is now of wardroom rank and is ranked as captain in the Royal Navy. And these are the two uh, highly recommended books for reading at the time. I want to revert to the army, but in deference to our trans-channel neighbors um, and erstwhile enemies, Larry was a, a fantastic surgeon, organizer, teacher, trainer, and inspirational leader. And again, a very robust man to stand up to authority. Uh, emphasizing his technical ability, here he is admiring his recent patient, Marshal Jean Lannes, who was, uh, had a right leg amputated after the Battle of Ashburn Essling, being comforted by his emperor. Unfortunately, Lannes died uh, from sepsis uh, to the disappointment of Larre, but that was the fastest recorded limb removal time in the annals of military history. It was one minute, 40 seconds. 
So that's one aspect of Larry, but there were many others. And the most important one was his bringing surgery into the front line. So that the revolutionary armies, he got the idea on the Rhine and he put it into place in North Italy that there was close medical support if it was needed. Okay, there were vehicles, two-wheeled sprung ambulances and four-wheeled for heavier terrain. But it wasn't those vehicles. It was a system called an ambulance. This is one division of three that make up an ambulance. So there are three of these with 16 vehicles, a bevy of surgeons with one in charge, and support staff to look after discipline, maintenance, horses, and setting up the field hospital where necessary. It was an absolutely brilliant concept. The problem uh, of it, we'll, we'll talk about a problem in a minute, but also, of course, there was Pierre-Francois Percy. Here are two dedicated stretcher bearers, men whose no other job is to remove men from the battlefield. We did not have that. Uh, there were only a few companies of them, about five or six for a few hundred each, so one mustn't get the impression that these ambulance services and the brancardier bearers were available to everyone. They were not. But it was a concept that was so important. And the tragedy is that we didn't take it on in Britain. We were, uh, had a parsimonious government. We were economically on our knees. Everyone was fed up after 22 years of war. I can understand why, but it's very reprehensible that, for instance, uh, Gideon Van Milligan, who in 1819 published a recommendation that we had dedicated stretcher bearers and ambulance service, was turned down. And this is uh, Larry's equipment used in Russia, and you can see the elegance of the instruments and the linen dressings. So, improved status, remuneration in some respect for the military surgeon. Many of them went on to have very um, lucrative private practices. And uh, control of smallpox, scurvy, some progress with isolation for contagion and sepsis. Adequate diet most of the time some militarization of medicine and local care for the sick and wounded, but sadly, Simon, no improvement in transport, I'm afraid, which was always a, a bugbear for Wellington. Latterly, considerable surgical innovation, particularly with, with bleeding and fracture management and trepanation. Today, we have some impressive results. That's been alluded to. At Waterloo, the in-hospital mortality was 9%. At Salamanca, after Salamanca, 7%. And you think that's good, and it sounds good, but it isn't, because nobody got to hospital, and if you did, you were a selected survivor. That's the point. Here, we have almost every civilian and military personnel who have been severely damaged from minor to major injuries taken in, and if you get into Bastion alive, you've got over 93% chance of getting back to the UK. It's difficult to compare results today with then because treatment starts in the helicopter, and I understand that. But as near as we can get, these are pretty impressive results. So I leave you with this thought, ladies and gentlemen. I'm one who, um, Brigadier Parker, really admires what goes on today. I'm full of admiration. But I think it all really started uh, back in the wars against revolutionary Napoleonic France. I'm sure you'll agree there was a big national effort to do that. Thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed, Mick. I'm sure we'll be uh, bursting with questions. Please.
question to you is, um, all the key lessons that you can draw from history that all of these lessons and dimensions in the book, the way you deal with American leadership, the missing elements, and maintain the progress that we could see, particularly over the last decennial, which you could argue has been the revolution that we our question is, what are the key lessons um, from uh, warfare of history? I think we've um, now learned all the lessons, but it amused me to read an American paper from, I think, Iraq, saying that they'd improved the survival from death from hemorrhage at the site of IED or combat by 30% by just using tourniquets properly. So there's always the continuing way of doing things well, and I think you'd agree we, if we do things properly now, it can't be much bettered. But the question to me that's important is how you will not forget this and let this die. Because if you take the period between the end of the Napoleonic Wars and the Crimean War, that's two generations of military men, two generations of surgeons. It was all forgotten. Now, I'm not trying to say that will happen with Strensel and Aldershot and all the places in Birmingham you've got now. But how you keep the impetus going with no conflict to keep these men practiced in warfare, because I think you can see these men at this time were learning on the battlefield. I'm sure you were too. And there have been a marvelous development. In, and we're learning quicker. We can communicate quicker. But my question is, how long can we maintain this? Who's going to keep paying Strensel? Who's going to keep paying every guy to go up there and do it in continued times of peace, which there may or may not be? It's a very good point about the first aid capability of the uh, serving personnel themselves. Yeah, yeah. In, in, in the period we're talking about here, what capacity was there for? Um, well, I, it, there's very little. The Navy was said to be training 10% of each battleship in the use of a tourniquet, but I found little on that. I don't know if you found anything. No. And the Army, um, there was no paramedical training. Some officers carried their own tourniquets into battle, but that was self-administration. Self Nothing, really, no. Sorry, um, so just gentlemen here and then see. <clears throat>
Oh, yes. So the questions about venous yes, section. Yes. It was challenged by enlightened surgeons. Larry was a big complainer, and Guthrie started getting very worried about it. The trouble is, um, uh, overfed and overdrank officers would often demand venous section to feel better for the day. There was a culture of understanding that this was vital for your well-being. <laughs> and I think, I don't know if you've got out of a bath ever and felt rather faint when you got up. I'm quite sure that feeling before fainting is quite pleasant, it's sort of giddiness, and I'm quite sure a lot of them felt that it was doing good. There were soldiers serving in Canada who begged for venous section, and it took a long time to get rid of it, unfortunately. <laughs> yes, I know, I know, it's, it's, crazy. it's crazy. And th those words were spoken 200 years ago, but of course communications, teaching, and influence of medical departments were not widespread, so the word didn't get round, unfortunately. So it was yes. Well, I repeat that I think Hunter was appalled by the lack of training um, and the sort of casual surgery that was carried out in off Kiberon Peninsula, and and I think that. He was probably right. It was probably best to leave alone under those circumstances. But as surgical expertise and understanding of wounding improved, they knew when to do and what to people. I mean, uh, Larry and Guthrie were both taking out heads of humerus instead of disarticulating it. Surgery became more conservative. And you learned that you only dilated or opened wounds when it was necessary. Uh, and it was learning about how to use what limited skills they had to the best advantage at, at the end of the war. And they certainly had that. I think our service at the end of the war was far in advance of the service to Sante. The number of times British surgeons came into captured French uh, compounds and found badly treated Frenchmen, this concept of Larry and everything was wonderful was actually not true. The French were on the downfall during the war. They'd had their bit at Austerlitz and Ulm and all the rest of it, and then it went down. Britain was coming up during this period in medicine and in military. Andrew. question about, uh, well, the comment about the, the benefit of education and communication, but actually you were talking about the lack of parity between the Army and the Navy mm -hmm. in this period anyway, well, not now, which is... In some respects, yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. Well, I think perhaps our National Health Service and people like Lord Moynihan have dispelled the idea of poor communication between different hospitals and groups and our societies may be more cohesive than the French. I'd always like to think so anyway. 
I, I'd like to add that um, uh, <laughs> any uh, uh, francophobic comments that may or may not be inferred <laughs> were, were not the objective of this, this <laughs> meeting. Please, yes. Perhaps we'll see a return to the emergency general surgeon. We live in hope. <laughs> Please. It's a good and unresearched question on the whole. Um, there has been a book on, you know, looking at what happened to surgeons after the war, but it concentrated mainly on well-known people and senior people. The answer to your question is, at the end of the war in 1816, the medical population in Britain, if they'd all come back at once, which they didn't, but mostly they did, would have almost doubled. And it's a huge problem which hasn't been researched. I think if you read the careers of them, many of them leave the army, they retire on half pay, and they go on to do other things. But it must have been an awful struggle, and there must have been thousands of them. I quite agree. It needs researching. Final question. It would have, I think it would have made a difference if it had come in in the middle of this war. The question about George Guthrie and whether his uh, um, school would have been, should have been set yeah. up or what would have happened. But he made strident efforts to try and get one even after the war. And it, gradually we got Millbank and Fort Pitt and so on. And, but it was a slow business. I think the answer to your question is yes. And you can see what happened in Republican France. It was a lot better. They had courses of training in military surgery. It was conscripted, and they had a better type of candidate as well, of course. Splendid. Well, thank you very much indeed, Mick, uh, for your expertise. <laughs> the uh, third in our triumvirate in this panel of our bright young things um, uh, is Dr. Catherine Foxall, um, who I'm delighted uh, to welcome to the stage. Um, Kat, uh, Cat star in the uh, medical historical firmament is rising fast. Um, I've learned a great deal from her, first at Manchester, then at King's, and now at uh, Leicester, um, on a range of topics that she's worked on, in the history of migraine most recently, I believe. Um, but today she's returning to an earlier research project on the um, history of naval medicine, and um, very firmly bringing us back to the objectives of this meeting to look at uh, military medicine, not medicine and war, and reminding us of the development of uh, techniques and provision during peacetime. Kat. 
Um, thank you all for coming, and um, it's a really great honour, actually, to be speaking here today. So thank you, Sam, for the invitation to come and share my work with you. So what I want to do today is in part answer the gentleman's question here, which was what happened to surgeons after the Napoleonic Wars. So historians have often emphasised um, medical advancements that occurred during war. What I want to do today is to examine a less well-researched aspect of military medicine, which is the opportunities for the development of medical knowledge that occurred in peacetime. So my focus is the work of naval surgeons, in part, from the period around the period 1815 to around the 1840s, the decades directly following the end of the Napoleonic Wars. So while, as we've heard already this morning, the, the Navy, um, I'm going to focus on the Navy today, but while the Navy had a long tradition of undertaking medical sur surgical trials and of examining the effects of environments and deprivation on the minds and bodies of its men, in these decades following the end of the French Wars, a newly confident culture of scientific and medical experimentation was emerging. One of the most famous examples is the dispatch in 1839 of HMS Erebus and Terror to the Southern Hemisphere to survey terrestrial magnet magnetism, for example. In the hospitals too, closer to home, surgeons were testing new, new methods, none of it particularly glamorous, things like ventilation, disinfection. In 1827, the Navy established a library and museum at the hospital at Haslar, with the initial stock was about 400 pounds worth of books. Um, they employed a full-time lecturer and gave that lecturer a budget of 150 pounds a year to spend on books and education of the naval surgeons. The, the army did very much the same thing at the same time, and there's quite a lot of exchange between these institutions in the um, first half of the 19th century. So the Admiralty Librarian was instructed to educate surgeons in the effects of climate and of bad habits and the influence of these on the minds and bodies of seamen. Between 1827 and 1830, registers show that naval surgeons attended weekly lectures on a whole range of topics at the Naval Hospital. So these experimental endeavours in these decades were really crucial to shoring up the requirements of a large-scale navy that needed to fo function on a global scale at this time. But this post-Napoleonic climate of intellectual exchange also importantly coincided with the peak years of government involvement in colonial voyaging and with the transportation of British and Irish convicts to the colonies, specifically Australia. So in this context, for naval surgeons, convict and emigrant ships provided exciting new opportunities. These ships carried large numbers of people who were superfluous to the business of both sailing and of war over very long distances, over long periods of time. And it's these voyages I want to focus on today. And I'm going to focus on three examples of medical experimentation, kind of experimentation considered broadly. We're going to look at smallpox vaccination, scurvy therapeutics, and post-mortem examination. So Edward Jenner's smallpox vaccination is undoubtedly one of the most medical, um, most, one of the most important medical advances of our modern age. We know a lot about its very early transmission around the globe. So missionaries, merchants, colonial officials, and elite travellers carried precious parcels in their luggage, taking cowpox matter to the Mediterranean, to Russia, to North America, and Brazil. In 1802, vaccine arrived in Bombay, having been transported via a relay of children 
arm to arm across land from Baghdad. In 1803, the um, New South Wales Governor Gidley King requested the new vaccine matter for New South Wales. A supply was duly dispatched. The practice also sped very quickly to Europe. So from 1803, the Spanish Crown sponsored a Royal Maritime Vaccination Expedition to take Jenner's vaccine to Puerto Rico, Guatemala and the Philippines. So at the turn of the 20th century, physicians really fell over themselves to evangelise about Edward Jenner's discovery. Enthusiasm began to wane, however, within a couple of decades as instances of failure accumulated. From unbridled enthusiasm, by the 1820s and 1830s, debates about smallpox vaccine, particularly in the new medical journals such as The Lancet, had really shifted to questioning practice, questioning technique, concerns about safety, the permanence of protection, the preservation of the smallpox matter, and to concern about whether the power of cowpox was deteriorating as it passed through thousands of human carriers further and further from its original source in Gloucestershire. It had also become clear by about the 1820s, 1830s, that maintaining a constant supply of vaccine matter was incredibly difficult in all but the most densely packed of urban centres such as London or Paris. So military surgeons were some of the most enthusiastic early vaccinators. In 1797, Thomas Trotter advocated a general inoculation of sailors in ships and fleets. When Trotter returned from sea in 1799 to find the attention of the medical world focused on Jenner's publication, he requested to have some of the Gloucestershire cows transferred to the Navy farm in order to inoculate the seamen at Spithead with cowpox matter. In 1800, after undertaking trials on a number of ships, the sick and hurt board ordered that vaccination should be available to sailors. And in 1801, the Navy awarded Jenner with a gold medal as a token of its appreciation for his discovery. So in 1815, following the end of the Napoleonic Wars, naval surgeons were made responsible for the health of convicts sent to Australia, a process that would see more than 160,000 men, women and children sent to the Australian colonies between 1787 and the 1860s. The earliest of these convict ship surgeons' medical journals include careful records of the vaccinations that they performed on the convicts bound for Australia. By 1821, there's records to show that the commissioners of the Navy were routinely sending packages of vaccine virus from the National Vaccine Establishment in London to the surgeons who were in superintending these ships. So naval surgeons' journals, then, are an extremely important resource for understanding the history of vaccination in general. Until recently, we, have, we've, we know a lot about these early years, but until recently, we've tended to assume the inevitability of the triumph of smallpox vaccination, leading inevitably up to the World Health Organization's direct declaration in 1979 that smallpox had been globally eradicated. And yet, in the intervening decades, we've actually known very little about how vaccine matter and the practices that made it work actually traveled. The time and space of long voyages allowed naval, na naval surgeons to experiment with this procedure. So adopted initially by the Navy because of its promise to improve maritime health, naval surgeons also provide some of the most compelling evidence of the persistent difficulties of preserving and transporting vaccine in these early decades. So in 1825, the British government co-opted naval surgeons to supervise another migrant group, 
when they sent nine ships from Cork to Upper Canada with around just over 2,000 Irish Catholic labourers and their families, most of whom travelled with four or five children. So this scheme represents one of the earliest experiments with state-sponsored emigration um, and colonisation from the British Isles, and naval surgeons were extremely conscious of this and their role they played in this experiment. They noted, for example, how the emigrants coped with the sudden changes in weather and the high temperatures, and offered the government advice for supplying food rations and medical comfort should they um, attempt something similar in the future. So the vaccination of the emigrants and their children was a crucial aspect of this colonial experiment. But the naval surgeons went about it in very different ways. On the Albion, on the ship Albion, for example, John, Tom John Thompson vaccinated three children with cowpox on the 6th of May 1825 while waiting in Cove Harbour for favourable weather to begin the five-week Atlantic crossing. Eight days after the procedure, which was the length of time a successful um, vaccine took to produce the distinctive full areola that we see here. Thompson found that while it had produced some results, the vaccine had actually failed in all three children. So the surgeon chose one of the children, a seven-year-old girl named Catherine, whose pock had failed only on the last day and tried again. Into the skin on her right arm, he inserted the vaccine sent to him by the Navy board. Into the skin on her left arm, Thompson vaccinated Catherine with an alternative supply that had been sent to him privately by a man named Dr. Johnston of Burstry. So poor seven-year-old Catherine has now been vaccinated three times in the space of eight days. Again, the official Navy vaccine failed, but Dr. Donston's private supply produced a very fine pock, Thompson explained, in Catherine's left arm. So with renewed confidence, Thompson now vaccinated Catherine's two younger siblings, siblings with Dr. Johnston's vaccine, as well as three other children. Nine days later, in mid-Atlantic, the surgeon chose the boy whose arm had produced the best results, Catherine's five-year-old brother John, and used him to vaccinate another eight children. He repeated the process twice more as they sailed across the Atlantic, each time choosing one of the most recently vaccinated children as the source of fresh supply. He undertook the final procedure on the 11th of June, just four days before the Albion arrived in Quebec. So what Thompson had done then was to create a chain of bodies that would keep a vaccine alive in order to be able to introduce it to Upper Canada on their arrival. Now, Thompson described the emigrant children in a really telling phrase as being living subjects. If vaccine would only work, these young bodies would become the perfect vessel for getting fresh, fresh vaccine supplies to the colonies, living extensions to the surgeon's travelling medical cabinet. Some of the other surgeons during this expedition concentrated on preventing outbreaks of smallpox at sea rather than making um, vaccine travel, as it were. So on the Fortitude, for example, the surgeon attempted 29 vaccinations of children and adults in the first two few days of the voyage, again, the whole of which proved unsuccessful, unfortunately. The surgeon of the Elizabeth also vaccinated all of the children on, on his ship before sailing, again, all failed. They're all using the Navy's vaccine. So the Navy's vaccine has failed in every case. William Burney, one of the surgeons, suggested that the Navy's vaccine must either have been originally bad or it must have been kept too long. Burney complained that it had been supplied between two square pieces of common glass wrapped only in a single fold of white paper. 
and that the quantity of vaccine had been so minuscule it was scarcely visible on the glass. John Thompson believed that his private supply of vaccine had been successful because it had been carefully wrapped in tinfoil rather than paper. So I think although all of these vaccines failed, I think they're really important because it shows just how difficult vaccination actually was in the early 19th century. Throughout the 1820s and 1830s, naval surgeons' journals from convict and emigrant ships reveal them trying again and again to make bad lymph work to give inert matter life. Colonial newspapers from the time provide further evidence of these difficulties. So in 1839, the Sydney Morning Herald explained that no lymph had arrived in the colony for two years and they were really getting desperate. Repeated attempts had been made, but none had been successful. So when HMS Polaris arrived with live supplies in 1839, a deputation of local Sydney subscribers presented the surgeon of the ship with a handsome silver snuff box engraved with the words, a token of regard for the benefit he has conferred by successfully introducing the vaccine lymph into New South Wales. In the West Indies too, vaccine was an incredibly important commodity. In 1837, the governor of Barbados actually distri was distributing his gifts of vaccine with diplomatic dispatches that were passing between the islands and colonies of the Eastern Caribbean. So what the governor did was really transform vaccine into a, both a political and a diplomatic commodity, emphasizing his fellow governor's subordinate position within the region and demanding their gratitude for supplying such a valuable medical um, service. So live vaccine then has really become extremely valuable and naval surgeons were at the heart of trying to make it travel in the early 19th century. So to move on then to my second example, as we've heard just um, from Mick Crumplin just previously, the scurvy story is will be familiar to all of you. In 1795, Thomas Trotter, Gilbert Blaine, and James Cook finally forced the Admiralty to authorise the regular issue of lemon juice in the Navy. In 1822, Gilbert Blaine declared that, med that the medical art had cured scurvy. So in fact, by the time naval surgeons began to routinely superintend convict voyages in 1815, the Navy was so confident that scurvy had been eradicated that they didn't even include it in the list of diseases printed in the surgeon's journals. And uh, you can just see it down here where one surgeon has written it in. So it's somewhat a surprise, therefore, given this confidence, to discover that during the 1830s, scurvy became an almost constant feature during convict voyages of transportation to Australia. Again and again, surgeons were finding the need to write scurvy into their medical journals by hand. So why was this happening? Well, during the 1820s and 1830s, prison authorities in Britain were steadily reducing dietary scales in British and Irish prisons. During the 1820s, scurvy even became known as the Millbank disease after an epidemic in the newly opened prison, which affected half of the prison's inmates following a reduction in their rations. The establishment of separate or silent systems of solitary confinement reformed prison um, ideas about the architecture of prisons, exacerbated these effects on prisoners' minds and bodies. So, for example, in 1842, the naval surgeon Andrew Henderson complained that the prisoners he received from the prison hulks at Woolwich were in a very low state of health when they embarked, their spirits broken. Archibald Robertson, the surgeon of the Y hospital ship, who cared for the sick prisoners that Henderson was complaining about, 
insisted that blame lay not with his system, but further back in the system, and that prisoners who had been subjected to the silent or solitary systems and fed on gruel or bread or water had had their vital powers injured before reaching the prison hulks. But it wasn't just prison authorities who were reducing rations. In 1832, the Admiralty had reduced by at least a quarter the rations to be supplied to convict ships, and that included the supplies of lemon juice and sugar. In 1835, William Burnett reinstated the old scale of lemon juice after the convict ship George III hit rocks and sank with the loss of 127 lives when the captain tried to take a shortcut through a channel just outside Hobart because of the horrible health of those on board. More, idi more idiosyncratically during these years, however, naval surgeons were continuing to search for an alternative scurvy remedy to lemon juice that was easy to produce, took up little space, and could be reliably stored for months at a time. Crucially, it needed to be cheap. And I think this figure of 150,000 gallons per year that um, Dr. Crumplin's just mentioned actually gives you a sense of how expensive this stuff really was and why the Navy were keen to find an alternative if possible. So one possibility was citric acid. Uh, volumes in the Admiralty's Medical Library at Haslar describe Carl William Sheeler's method from 1784 for making crystalline citric acid from the juice of lemons, much easier to store. In 1795, David Patterson published his book, A Treatise on the Scurvy, not so well known, in which he introduced another potential remedy. He claimed that he had restored 80 seamen from the scurvy without using vegetable matter and that he in, instead had used trying a solution um, of nitrate of potash, also known as nitra. This was cheap, easy to produce, did not decompose, and a supply, crucially, a supply could be obtained on board ship from regular supplies of gunpowder. So Patterson's theory first appeared in 1795, the same year that the Admiralty issued lemon juice to sailors. It's hardly surprising then that nitra sank without a trace in competition with such a landmark in the history of scurvy. Yet in, 19, in 1829, nitra made a surprising comeback. So 216 convicts had embarked on the convict ship Ferguson. Many were in poor health following their imprisonment, made worse by bad weather and seasickness early in the voyage. Before the Ferguson crossed the equator, the hospital was full of scurvy patients and the supplies of lemon juice were exhausted. In desperation, the naval surgeon Charles Cameron remembered Patterson's recipe, pillaged the Ferguson's gunpowder supply and made 64 ounces of the nitrous solution. The remedy's effect, he declared, were almost miraculous. Cameron and the Ferguson's captain, I could just imagine them, abandoned their plan to divert to Rio de Janeiro, totally ignored stopping at the Cape of Good Hope and headed straight for New South Wales. Cameron reported his results to the Navy Board and to the Lo London Medical Gazette, which published the details in 1831. So the Admiralty were delighted. NYTRA seemed to solve ongoing concerns about the unnecess that unnecessary expenditure being the Admiralty term associated with issuing lemon juice at sea. William Burnett enthusiastically re received Cameron's report and proposed that two tonnes of nitrate of potash should be supplied for every hundred men on convict ships. So during the 1830s, naval surgeons freely experimented with gunpowder and nitra in treating scurvy on convict ships. One surgeon combined the potash with lime juice and peppermint oil, diffused in a small portion of alcohol and mixed with some sugar, sounds quite nice, the convicts drank it three times a day. 
By the late 1830s, however, scurvy would strike the majority of convict ships that arrived in Australia. So in 1840, William Burnett officially reopened investigations into scurvy in the Navy. He issued lime juice, citric acid, and nitrate of potash to nearly all of the surgeons in the convict service. Over 60 ships carrying 15,000 convict men from Britain and Ireland to Australia between 1840 and 1844 received the three remedies. Burnett made it quite clear that surgeons were not to try and cause scurvy in order to try and then cure it. They were to undertake a trial only if scurvy appeared during the voyage. It's also worth mentioning that no female convict vessels were included in the trial and that some surgeons totally just simply ignored the experiment altogether. So one surgeon, Henry Marn, oh, one, yeah, so one guy just ignored it to focus on meteorology. But what some surgeons really took it quite seriously, and these, these images are from Henry Marn's report onto scurvy um, from the voyage of the Barossa, and they're really, I think, quite remarkable paintings from 1842, representing the state of the convict's legs with scurvy. So if scurvy appeared, the surgeons were instructed to divide the scorbutic patients into three divisions containing cases of parallel severity and similar symptoms, and to give each group one of the remedies. Notwithstanding these instructions, the surgeons did entirely what they wanted, and altered, combined, and varied the doses of the three remedies according to their own personal preference. Not surprisingly, perhaps, they came to striking divergent conclusions about the remedy's value. In addition, the majority of surgeons continued to follow Article Number 17 of their instructions, which specified that surgeons were to issue an ounce each of lemon juice and sugar to the men daily, either mixed with wine or dry as a sherbet. One surgeon, Alexander Bryson, wrote retrospectively about the experiment for the Medical Times and revealed that he had been deeply frustrated by his, the failure of his fellow surgeons to undertake the experiment in his eyes properly. Bryson felt that when surgeons issued the lemon juice daily from early in the voyage, the juice would lose its influence on the system with such long-continued use. So Bryson, on his ship, withdrew the convict's usual allowance of lime juice in order that the effects of each remedy might be more clearly observed if scurvy appeared during the voyage. Scurvy did indeed appear before Bryson's ship crossed the equator. And really the marker of the equator is quite important. If scurvy appears during the equator, before the equator, you've got a real problem. So in withdrawing the juice, Bryson emphasised that he had exercised his discretionary power in accordance with his position of authority. In so doing, he argued, whatever proof he might obtain from the trial would be the more conducive more conclusive and satisfactory. In his journal, Bryson recorded only 11 cases of scurvy, but his remarks and his later article in the Medical Times make it clear that at least 60 of the convicts developed scurvy during that voyage. During the voyage, Bryson observed that the nitra caused nausea and sickness among the convicts. In rapid succession, other symptoms of scurvy appeared. Swollen, ulcerated, spongy and hemorrhaging gums, loose teeth, fetid breath and sweat, livid blotches, indolent boils, rigidity of the tendon, erratic pains of the limbs, and mental dejection plagued the men. Bryson persisted, however, until no doubt about the nitrous efficacy could remain. On the 24th of September, 1842, as the Marquis of Hastings reached the Cape of Good Hope, Bryson finally discontinued entirely the use of nitra um, proclaiming it to be objectionable and procured for the worst cases of scurvy 
particularly from the, for those who'd suffered from the potash plan of treatment, a tolerable supply of oranges from the Cape. So what did William Burnett make of the comments that he received from the surgeon? Well, the results from 1842 alone proved the value of lemon as an antiscorbutic. He wrote, in 11 ships in which lemon juice was issued daily in the usual manner, only 56 cases of scurvy are reported. Whereas in two vessels where lemon juice was not issued to the prisoners for reasons specified by the medical officers, upwards of 100 cases occurred, many of them of a serious nature before they reached the Cape of Good Hope. So on one level, Burnett's conclusion simply reaffirms the classic history of scurvy's cure as being affected by lemon juice. And yet, what this experiment shows us is that a century after Lynn's famous experiment, such a conclusion still hid a great deal of uncertainty in medical knowledge about the causes and the cure of scurvy, but also the context in which scurvy appeared, in this case, the effects of changing penal regimes in Britain. It's also worth noting that this experiment took advantage of a particular co colonial context, because in 1840, Sir John Franklin, an enthusiastic patron of colonial maritime science, became, the became new Van Diemen's Land's new governor, while Franklin's predecessor, Governor George Arthur, had repeatedly complained about the arrival of sick convicts on the Navy ships, and Sir George Gipps in New South Wales called medical boards to investigate sickness at sea and the naval surgeon's work at every opportunity, William Burnett could be confident that Franklin would, if not openly endorse, his trial at least turn a blind eye to the Navy's ongoing attempts to investigate scurvy in this manner. So if distance from land was both a curse and an opportunity in the naval surgeon's encounter with scurvy during this time, when someone at sea died, the advantages of this maritime isolation became very clear in the decades following the Napoleonic Wars. Until the Anatomy Act of 1832, Surgeons in Britain could only legally dissect the bodies of people who had been hanged as punishment for murder. With a dearth of suitable teaching material, surgeons often obtained their bodies through body snatches. The Anatomy Act of 1832 changed this. Unless a family member arrived within 48 hours, it gave doctors the power to requisition the bodies of poor people who had died in hospitals and workhouses. So the subject of anatomical dissection in this um, period following the Napoleonic Wars, particularly when combined with fears surrounding this new disease of cholera, provoked violent unrest, particularly among the poor. Riots and demonstrations related to the Anatomy Act occurred around Britain in the 1830s. Now, the significance of this situation for naval surgeons is clear if we consider the year 1828, when the surgeon of the hospital ship Grampus boasted to a parliamentary select committee that naval surgeons, unlike their colleagues on land, could open the bodies of seamen after death whenever we wished to do so. In 1827, the Navy had instructed its librarian to receive from all contributors such specimens of morbid anatomy or subjects of natural history, etc., as may be offered to you. Between March and July 1828, Surgeon Johnston performed six post-mortem examinations during the voyage of the male convict ship William Miles. This is a remarkable tally. In one voyage, Johnston had access to more bodies than any surgeon in Britain at the time could really imagine. In 1831, for example, the year before the Anatomy Act, medical men in the whole of London only had legal access to a total of 11 dead bodies. Legal access, that is. 
so naval surgeons had not always been so open about the subject of their examination. As Mark Harrison has noted, although surgeons in the West Indies reported dissecting the bodies of soldiers to investigate yellow fever, 18th and early 19th century medical journals rarely included accounts of dissections. By the 1830s, however, naval surgeons at sea were freely exploring and discussing their observations of the dead bodies of convicts, sailors, soldiers and emigrants. So that reports of maritime post-mortem procedures were an expected aspect of the naval surgeon's role rather than a rare perk. It is clear from the number of times surgeons felt it necessary to explain why they did not examine a dead body. Often the weather intervened, so Surgeon Johnston, having already examined six corpses on the William Miles, was pre prevented from opening a seventh because of bad weather. Henry Brock had a great desire to open the body of John Gooch, but had been unable to do so because he had been afflicted with fever that he attributed to his exposure to the sun at the Cape of Good Hope. So for surgeons, post-mortem examinations became both an opportunity to acquire knowledge and a tool to explain disease. Yet even at sea, naval surgeons could not escape the widespread loathing and fear of dissection. Emigrants and soldiers in particular often sailed to Australia with members of their family, and evidence from surgeons' journals suggests that their bodies were much less likely to be subjected to post-mortem examination than those of male convicts and sailors who went to sea alone. Emigrants in particular often made their feelings about post-mortem examination clear to remind a surgeon of the limitations of his authority. And in one case, when a soldier died of pneumonitis early in the voyage of the convict ship Lady Raffles, the surgeon reported that there had been no post-mortem on account of his wife and the inconvenience of the place. Now, the entrance to the Thames was hardly a good place to be disposing of a dismembered body in 1840, but I think it's important that the presence of the surgeon's wife also saved the surgeon's hand. Mothers especially often refused to allow the examination of their children. Helen MacDonald has also shown that naval surgeons became, became leading figures in colonial dissection practices, a culture that was as hungry for the bodies of Aboriginal people as it was for those of Britain's labouring and destitute poor. So in conclusion then, isolation from land allowed naval surgeons to use their ships in some ways as laboratories. But the examples I've discussed today show that understanding the peacetime nature of culture of medical experimentation in the post-Napoleonic Navy demands that we think not just about surgeons and the isolation and their, their experiments at sea and in hospitals, but about all the people they came into contact with as well. This includes sailors, convicts, emigrants and children. Practices of vaccination, therapeutic experimentation and post-mortem examination create medical advances, but they also reinforce the mistrust and reluctance that char characterise relationships between medical men and ordinary people at this time. Far from being simply a naval issue, surgeons' experimental practices place them at the centre of 19th century debates about imprisonment, imperialism, colonisation and emerging debates about what we now call medical ethics. Naval surgeons were, for instance, some of the earliest and most strident critics of solitary confinement in prisons. So just to finish off, I just want to return to nitrate of potash because although Patterson's remedy um, really was consigned to the past by the 1840s, it's perhaps worth noting that in the 21st century, pharmaceutical companies market potassium nitrate as an active ingredient in toothpaste because it is clinically proven to desensitize, desensitize nerve endings in teeth. 
So the belief of many 19th century surgeons that the same ingredient might have reduced the pain of scurvy, a disease so commonly experienced in the mouth and gums, suddenly might not seem so strange. Thank you very much. Needless to say, uh, this is by no means an endorsement of any <laughs> products by the Royal College of Surgeons of England. Other tooth fates are available. Um, thank you very much, Kat, for a very contrasting um, talk, but an important perspective there. And I think uh, one theme that's um, coming through very clearly to me is the importance of, of healthcare in military medicine beyond that of the immediate um, conflict trauma, which we've um, uh, reiterated several times. Um, Questions? Mick. Um, thank you very much, Catherine. I enjoyed that. The, the practice of dissection or post-mortem was uh, recommended routinely in the instructions to uh, officers who got the general hospitals in Wilton published in Questions about um, uh, debates as to the causes of scurvy after 1845. Um, yeah, I mean, it's quite oftenly recognised, certainly in the 19th century, that one of the main, one of the places you find scurvy in the 1840s is during the Irish Famine, for example. Um, it also occurs uh, apparently more in the Merchant Navy than in the Royal Navy as well. Um, Arctic expeditions is one of the most common places for finding scurvy. But actually, one of the things that I find particularly interesting about working on the history of scurvy now is that actually we still encounter scurvy now. And one of the places in which scurvy is encountered in the modern day, even within military context, is in refugee camps um, that are relying solely on aid, food parcels for aid. So it's interesting that in some places we are seeing a re-emergence of scurvy. There's also a recent French study a couple of years ago um, that emphasised that quite remarkable figure in geriatric wards that are possibly they quoted the figure of 12% of long-term patients in geriatric wards showing clinical symptoms of scurvy because of problems with diet, inability, particularly if they've been living at home on their own for a long time. So I think scurvy, we kind of, we often talk about scurvy, you know, kind of almost in a joking way, but I think actually 
it's, it remains an important topic and something that we need to remain wary of that, you know, within medical practice today. I think it's a, it's a valid topic. And yes, it, it did not end in 1795, unfortunately. Mark. Ten thousand. I think one of the debates in which I see them being most visible is in the 1840s is about this debate about prison reform. Obviously, they weren't successful because we still, I mean, places, they were particularly critical of Pentonville when it opened in 1842. Um, and obviously, we still use the same Pentonville today for holding our prisoners. So I don't, I don't really know, I guess, is my answer to that in terms of thinking long-term about... But I think it's certainly true to say that in the colonies, so places such as Australia, naval surgeons, military surgeons were absolutely key as important figures in um, convict establishments, in colonial hospitals. I mean, you know from your own work and debates about fevers in, off the coast of Africa... So I think naval surgeons, I don't think the division is as clear-cut as it is today. I mean, in reference to what you were saying about kind of returning to almost collaboration between civilian and military, I think that actually that's quite an old model. That I don't think that um, division was so clear-cut. But I'm not sure of how much of an effect they had in the 19th century. Question at the back, and then.
No, I am. Um, I, I, I've been reflecting during this session that I may have to put on my running shoes <laughs> uh, and dash up and back and forth. Um, this question here. The question is about the use of Dickens as a primary source <laughs> in Dr. Foxall's research. Excellent. I haven't actually, I mean, I wor work with people who use literature a lot more than I do. I have not drawn particularly on certainly Dickens, um, although I do teach, I do teach with Dickens actually. So when you're talking, when you're introducing undergraduates to the concept of a convict hulk, it's useful to introduce it with great expectations. More so people like Henry Melville um, tended to use a little bit. People like Joseph Conrad have been more important. Yes, but certainly I think there's something about the vividness of you get from literature, which I think is really important. And some of the, um, although actually some of the most useful, um, what the, probably the one thing, the novel that I do keep coming back to is um, Golding's trilogy, and they deserve that BBC um, drama a few years ago of that voyage, the evocation of the voyage to Australia, although that's not contemporary. So I guess, yes, absolutely, particularly in terms of evoking this. But I think what I actually found was that you cannot be, there's nothing as evocative actually as the surgeon's journals. The medical journals that the surgeons, naval surgeons produced during this time are incredible resources for understanding the relationship between physicians, surgeons, and the people that they were treating. And just the lives of the people that they were dealing with. I mean, the, it can seem quite dry in kind of medical detail, but these general remark sections that they have at the back, particularly in periods such as the Irish famine. So they talk... During the Irish famine, for example, the convict, the naval surgeons make really clear observations about the effects of the Irish famine, not so much in being in the convicts, but actually the soldiers who are signing up in the late 1840s from Ireland are signing up with malnutrition, with um, consumption, because they've suffered so heavily during the famine. So it's those kind of social observations that actually I found incredibly, I don't think we necessarily need novels. Well, I didn't find that I need novels because I think some of the surgeon's writing is, is incredible. Yeah, thank you. Our final question. And we want uh, data as well, please. Data. I'm sorry, I do not have the data on the relative, relative efficacy, but I do know that they, there, was, there was opinion that certain lemons were better than other lemons at the time, but I think it was a case of when you get to the good hope, anything was better than <laughs> nothing. But I think, yes, certainly. But I, I actually, I mean, 
one of the main ways in which convicts and sailors took this stuff was lemon and sugar as a sherbet mixed into wine. Now, I think I could probably drink that every day for four months. But no, I'm afraid I don't have the kind... I'm sure it has been done, but I don't have that I, on, off the top of my head, that data of the relative efficacy. I think it was a case of get what you can, where you can. Well, ladies and, and as cheap as possible. Yes. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we will um, shortly break, uh, but the fun will continue. In the Great Hall where lunch is, there's a pop-up exhibition from the... Uh, thanks to the kind offices of Brian Morgan, the honorary archivist of the... British Association for Plastic Reconstructive and Aesthetic Surgeons. Um, there will this afternoon be uh, original archival material out in this room, uh, uh, chiming with the talks we have this afternoon. And as I've said, um, the War Art and Surgery exhibition um, is open just, up, um, just upstairs in the Hunterian Museum. Um, this has been our longest session. Um, and uh, lunch in the Edward, uh, it is my sincere hope that there will be lunch in the Edward Lumley Great Hall just down the corridor. Um, but just before we break up to do that, um, I'd like to thank the speakers, not only for keeping to order the organizer's blessing, but also for four really contrasting but resonant takes um, to kick us off in a great way. Thank you very much indeed, all four of you.